tiny people and we play with them. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Crate and Crowbar Miniatures podcast, the irregular successor to Miniatures Monthly with me, Chris Thurston, and you, Matt Chimp-Ward. Hello. Miniatures almost monthly. Yeah, this is, it's remarkably, this one, provided I get it uploaded in the next couple of days, will come out in the succeeding month to the previous episode. Um... There's a word for this cadence, but I've already said it once, and that's my limit. And so I won't be saying it again. But nonetheless, Good. it's nice to be nice to be talking about Warhammer again. Um, and in our particular neck of the, the the miniatures woods, there's been quite a big shakeup um, to the game that mm. we both played the most. In that, at the beginning of this month, the beginning of July. Um, Age of Sigmar 3rd edition or AOS 3 kind of came along um, with the Dominion launch set and new rule books and, and all the rest of it, um, which itself came after many weeks of um, speculation um, of varying degrees of intensity <laughs> yes. and pain <laughs> um, and joy and all of the things that happen when you give one piece of information to a dedicated fan community about anything really and allow them to simply extrapolate the rest um, as if by some kind of algorithmic internet process. But nonetheless, we have all the mm. answers now. And not only that, we've managed to play it and build and paint some models and things. So necessarily, um, uh, this episode of the podcast is going to be heavily about AOS 3, I suspect. And we have even um, made some slight changes to the normal running order because uh, we're recording this about a week after uh, you and I um, played some actual games of Age of Sigmar 3rd Edition. It was so exciting. It was an incredible time. Just two men in a garden, <laughs> in a gazebo, <laughs> rolling dice and thinking about stuff decisions we played for so long that we wore out two perfect patches of grass incredible uh, where we've been walking up where we've been pacing up and down doing the wargamer the wargamer pace In, so, oh i didn't really oh wow i'm sorry yeah. to your lawn but also that's these are the unexpected outcomes of playing war games together in an almost post pandemic ish maybe let's see world um <laughs> the other the other complexity i really enjoyed about that was because we were using the gazebo to shield us from sun <laughs> rather than rain having to move the gazebo to maintain a sort of optimal <laughs> shadow over the area that we were playing in um these are not the things that they don't they don't teach you this stuff in in warhammer beginner hq this is all no. pretty veteran the, uh... stuff in the new Learn to Paint magazine, I assume there is a whole section about how to play outside. Mm. Uh, remember to put on sunscreen, stay hydrated, and uh, have a movable gazebo. <laughs> exactly. It's only a matter of time before they sell one themselves, let's be real. Um, this Christmas's hottest gift. Because, of course, it would end up being a Christmas thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Citadel battle gazebo. Anyway, so what we're going to do with this episode is... Uh, talk a little bit about what we've been up to in terms of our personal hobby and things, 
then talk a little bit about sort of general idea, general themes of AOS 3 if people aren't familiar, although I mentioned a lot of people listen to this will be. And then we're going to go into the battle reports because it's kind of the best way to kind of articulate what the game is like to play now. Uh, and then if we have time, we might talk about uh, some broader, because I've played some additional AOS 3 since. Um, hmm. We've both got thoughts about it. Maybe we go deep on it. Maybe we don't. Let's see how it goes. Um, but because we've got so much to discuss, we're also going to to not do questions. I don't know why I'm offering like a menu screen at the top of this podcast, but I just started talking. Um, but yeah, so I have, um, I think when we last, it's interesting because when we last recorded one of these, even though it wasn't that long ago in terms of number of months, I said it again. We um, knew nothing. We knew nothing. We knew nothing. You and I speculated about like, what would it mean if uh, coherency were to change? <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Oh, More of that it. later. Yeah. <laughs> um, but mostly we focused obviously on Soul Black Grave Lords. Mm. Um, uh, which, like many of the books that immediately preceded, it was very much a book written for this edition, which has been interesting yes. to watch it kind of flow out. Although um, one or- one quick Gravelord's point I desperately mm. wanted to make. Yeah. Uh, best FAQ of all time? The best FAQ of all time, I think. Yes, it was very much so, actually. Um, that FAQ bit, I, I assume you're referring to the FAQ whereby the like individual, yeah. yeah, the cursed F- the cursed city villains are now just individual units. The cursed, so the cursed- FAQ. Yeah, you can you can yeah. buy them individually, which is amazing. Exactly what I wanted. Actually, makes me want to buy that set of models, which I previously had no interest in. Yeah, it's um, a really good idea. I understand why they they wanted that to be one coherent set, given that they come together. Because mm-hmm. um, otherwise, it's obviously, very much a grab bag of stuff. But uh, this is referring to the various hero bosses from Curse City, but also things like the Verkos Bloodborne, the kind of leaping mm-hmm. feral. Um, and the vampires from, and the Vargskir, the bat Which werewolf. Makes me, it makes me think. Well, because it's a Vargskir, it makes me think of um, Icelandic yogurt. Mm. So well, yeah, it's, I it's think either, that's what it eats. It either eats. It either eats, or it's what it. Um, it's either, or it's the flat pack furniture that it rests in <laughs> um, at the end of its rampage. Um, but yeah, that, that was a great change and has opened up a ton of things for army. I don't want to fall down the vampire hole because last no, time we did not. this, we got like five minutes in that we fell down a vampire <laughs> hole for like two hours. Um, and it's waiting. So instead, let's talk a little bit about kind of what we've been up to since then. Cause I've, my hobby thing is rolled on, rolled mm. on would, um, is misleading because it suggests a sort of linear direction. Whereas at this point, it's more like a kind of squash ball bouncing around inside the court of my wandering attention. But how about you? How's your hobby life been since early my, June? My hobby life has been, it's been better, you know. Um, I've, uh, we were talking about this just before the pod. It's going to be okay. A, it's it's going to be fine. <laughs> developed a new technique of um, sending huge batches of emails at work and then using those 10 minutes of that churning away to put brush to model. Um, mm. which has meant that I have actually achieved uh, some pretty decent progress. And I think it, what also helped me enormously was the prospect of just having a game of Warhammer. And it's incredible yeah. how motivating that was to be like, all right, I want to play with these models. I need to get these models painted, ready to play on the table. Um, so I actually ended up doing a bunch of different stuff. Uh, I painted up. 10 Scryer Acolytes, uh, not the Games Workshop ones, but like a kit bash amalgamation of uh, Storm Vermin and some resin bits. 
Um, but they look quite loose, I thought. We played with them in a, in a game we'll talk about later. And I, what else did I clean up? I painted up a soul screen bridge, which has been sat in my cupboard for ages. I got very excited about, uh, soul screen bridging storm fiends and, um, just had to paint it immediately, even though I will almost certainly not be soul screen bridging storm fiends, uh, anytime soon as it's a deeply unfriendly thing to do to people. Um, <laughs> Soul screen bridge for those who aren't familiar is a sort of like two halves of a rib cage forming a bridge covered in blood ice cream ectoplasm no one well, can I painted say. it as blood but uh mm. the gw one's purple so who knows that's a sort of i guess the, the sort of like the shorthand for like death magic Spooky. right yeah yeah uh but yes it lets you uh it's actually a quite a nice model it's a bit of a horrible one to paint because all of that ectoplasm is not it's not the most distinct sculpt apart from the bone you sort of have to kind of do a bit of guesswork as to Mm. to where it goes um but it did take contrast like a champ uh which Mm -hmm. sped up that ectoplasm quite considerably yeah contrast Uh, it, (laughs) it could have been a bit of a nightmare trying to uh paint that in a more traditional style. Um, but that, that was fun. I enjoyed that. It's all, painting end of the spells is almost a bit like painting terrain in a way, isn't it? Yeah. They're made, they're designed, they're made by the same team, right? So it sort of makes sense. I think it's the, the thing that's similar about it is, um, they're inanimate objects. And for me, it's like, you don't necessarily, <laughs> what? They, I mean, obviously all minutes As opposed to <laughs> the living, the living models that come to life when you turn away. Um, no, what I mean is like, obviously when you're painting a character, there's like just a lot more to think about in terms of like their, you know, personality, the, the the actions they're undertaking, kind of sense of life and sort of drama and, and usually the pose is a lot more complicated where, whereas, and and there's also a lot more kind of details and equipment Mm. and textures, whereas an endless spell or even terrain, even complicated terrain, it's just this thing, you know, it's not my biggest take, honestly, ever, but like. (laughs) I feel like with the role they play in the game and the uh, the models themselves tend towards you. You just learn to paint the one thing that model is, and you're good, basically. Yeah, which is not true no, no. for almost any army anymore. Not even skeletons have that anymore, right? You, if you paint no. skeletons now, you're still painting tons of different things. Yeah, I get you. No, it it was quite fun to paint um, the source screen bridge. Actually, I should paint up more of my endless spells because I got both of the endless spell generic boxes the malign sorcery and the forbidden power ones and only really painted up the ones i've used which is uh you know like your cogs your spell mirror and stuff but the other ones are really cool models so um they, yeah they i do should do mine i've been thinking about it lately actually i'm actually going to repaint my geminids because i don't like how they came out <laughs> and i think i could do a much what? better job of it now Basically, yeah I just, I just and i know i'm going to use them a lot probably yeah. in the coming year let's say so yes. um they probably will get a, a repaint um mm-hmm. now that i have an airbrush, frankly, which I think will make much quicker work of, of some of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's not the only hobby I've done, though. I have done a fa- fair amount for me. Uh, I've been painting these two Achillean Alapexes that uh, Google informs me I've been painting since the 1st of January. Uh, <laughs> I hate them. New year, new every- army. <laughs> As we enter year three of my Deepkin project. Um, new year, new army. <laughs> I hate them with every fibre of my being, but they're so close to being done now, and I'm going to break the back of them soon, and I'll be so happy when they're done. 
Um, and they will look pretty nice as well for me. I will be happy with them. Um, the most exciting thing I painted there was a, a robot. I painted a, a little crisis suit. And I don't know what I just, I got this cardboard box full of crisis suits and I had just had to paint them. I just, <laughs> I, I think it was in like my eighth attempt to paint the reins on a shark. And I, I couldn't face it anymore, and I had to—I just had to paint a robot, um, and that was a lot of fun. Had a lot of fun doing that. I've never painted like that before. And the really, end result yeah. was like nothing I've done before, so it was cool. I enjoyed it. Yeah, that came out really nice as well. Yeah, I used oh, what are they called? The um, enamel, uh, like a almost like a wash, just a big, dirty, mm. grimy enamel wash. And then, um, so like I laid down the base coat like you normally do of everything, enamel washed all of that, some horrible dark grimy color. And then because I hate edge highlighting and, uh, towel notorious edge highlighters, uh, yeah. to completely avoid that, I just stippled everything, uh, all the armor, mm. every panel, uh, I just stippled the highlights on instead. Uh, which it turns out is more fun and I'm better at it than I am. <laughs> My edge highlights are so messy um, and they're never going to get not messy because I'm too lazy to put the time and effort in. Uh, this was cool. Just putting dots on a model. Lot of fun. Would recommend. Nice. That's a, yeah, that's a productive, that's a very varied month <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah. Well, I think that's been me recently is just like cannot focus on one thing. So it, anything I can do at the moment is progress, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So last podcast, you asked mm. if I was going to get the Dominion box. Yeah. What happened since the last podcast? Uh, what, you asked if, did you get it? I, I didn't did. get it. You I did. did. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, did, did I say I wasn't? I can't. I think, I think you were havering. But havering okay. on the side of probably were going to. Yeah, I think I think I definitely saw it. Is like obviously it's. I mean, if I tell the story of my last month in hobby, it will it will show that havering is a really good, a good general theme. Um, <laughs> I think with Dominion, I think I I had some of the same as a lot of people do that sort of hype that surrounds a new thing, mm. and I think I've gotten better at passing. Am I actually excited about this or am I excited because other people are excited about it? And I think I'm now in the earlier years of me returning to the hobby, I found that harder to pass. I think I'm, I'm now pretty much figured it out. Like I think with Indomitus last year, the 40k ninth edition launch set, I recognized in time that I wasn't actually excited about it. <laughs> like everyone, mm. you know, everyone was and it was exciting to be around and, and to see people's models come together and stuff like that. But I didn't want space marines and I didn't want Necrons. And that, that actually made, you know, that decision kind of, um, for me this time around was like different for me because i um i feel much just much more attached to aos generally but yeah. also like i think um that box um is i have to say like i think one of the best one of these big boxes they have ever done in terms of the quantity and quality of the models in it yeah, and they're very good uh, both in terms of the, I, I love both sets of models, um, the Cruel Boys, Oryx, and the the new Stormcast, um, and also just like the 
they also don't feel like a random set of models. I think this is more true for the Stormcast mm-hmm. than the, the Krill Boys, but they, they both feel like meaningful beginnings to armies. Yeah, and I think in the Stormcast the- case, you'd use almost everything, which is rare for a box like this. Very rare. The Krill Boys, it feels like you probably have one killer boss too many. Mm. Um, it's like a coherent mummy. You probably wouldn't be doing that. But I kind of don't begrudge them it because they're both amazing models. Uh, and I think it's pretty unusual for a staff set to have a model that big as well, right? I think that's part of what makes it feel really cool as a as a box. Yeah. Well, both both the killer boss on huge weasel, whatever the fuck it is, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and Indrasta are like meaningfully centerpiece models. Like Indrasta's not like yeah, yeah. big, big, big by Warhammer standards, but she is certainly like you know, um, you know. The the standout miniature from the box from the Stormcast side, but I think Certainly, also like yeah yeah an improvement over um, Soul Wars where your standout model was like a ghost on a horse, which is it was a nice horse but not the nicest uh, or mm. the, not necessarily the most centerpiece model you could have given out right. It's just I guess sort there of was a normal the, the Lord Arcanum on the big bird, but yes, but that's yeah. that, he, that's not a particularly big bird. It's sort not of a horse-sized bird. <laughs> it, it was a horse-sized bird, um, and um, and boy, oh boy, there are some big birds coming. Um, oh lord! But like the yeah, like just the and I, I sort of I was looking at looking at staring at that box, basically thinking, yeah, I, I do want all of this, and it turns out I did. And so this month has been a strange one for me, and I kicked it off just initiating this massive um, soul blight building project. Like um, soul blight are going to feature less obviously than they did last week for me, but also they've had less of a part of the last month than I expect them to be. Um, and not in a way that I'm uncomfortable with. I have built and converted and based and green stuffed and primed a lot of soul blight. And when I paint it all, I will have a soul blight army because that's how that works. Nice. Um, and then I started by getting stuff painted. I paint, but what I've painted from that set so far is the vampire load on foot uh, with the bats in their hair, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, and the Vangorian Lord. I did the Vangorian Lord partly. It's actually one of the last models I built and one of the first I painted, partly because mm-hmm. I was staring at it thinking, this is not the model in the army that you push to last. <laughs> like, it's such an intimidating... Yeah, it's a lot it's, going on on that model. It's it's more intimidating to me than the Zombie Dragon or the Vampire Lord and Zombie Dragon. Just because By far, of the, yeah. The hose. So I was kind of... I got two of those. So um, just so that... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh i painted not them but a vangorian lord and the vampire lord on foot this I, I, this project is definitely building out my experience in curse city and doing curse city primarily with oils um and i wanted to use the vampires primarily as an exercise in painting like quite brightly and expressively but with oils and like my vangorian lord has like pink scalloped armor and my vampire lord on foot has sort of like blue pink plated armor and i'm trying to be a bit paint something a little weirder than I've done in the past, um, hmm. but sticking within the palette of death, um, which, which I think is given your previous armies are each. Yeah, but I think I think I uh, you know my that was my learning to do armies for again army, and therefore I I, I did sort of follow the color scheme, right? Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't until subsequent projects that I got more comfortable just really doing my own thing, and even then, like I'm trying to stick within understood colors to death and just i just want to kind of play with methodology and lots of weird like you know 
approaches to those miniatures. They were a while ago now, but like lots of glazing metallics over gloss varnish and then staining them with oils and wiping them off. And, um, but a really fun process overall. In the meantime, I got really distracted by how much I like a lot of the new order miniatures, including the witch hunter father daughter team, um, mm-hmm. the Vendensts that were released, um, a month and a half ago. So I just picked them up. No real plans for them necessarily. I just liked them in the, um, Broken Realms Kragnos book. I really love the models. Um, Great painted models. them. Yeah. Painted them. Um, I also recently, um, started using like kind of quite heavy, um, artists acrylics to give them a go, um, specifically like for skin. And I hadn't actually painted like a non gribbly human for a long time. I almost never do. Like, I, you know, I like my vampires are all very like, you know, Palette. Like, mm-hmm. palette and but also you know there's lots of odd colors mixed in like bright reds and blues all mixed together in their flesh and i wanted to try painting uh like uh, some relatively healthy humans and i really enjoyed that and that sort of like lit a little spark in my brain for just like the stormcast side of of dominion and realized that i really enjoyed painting brighter more hopeful looking miniatures honestly so like the basing, like covering their bases in like, you know, doing these sort of like arid, um, maybe step country bases, but like covered in flowers and long grass and like trying to build up the verdancy of it. Um, so the Dominion box arrived and I had a sort of challenge for myself that I wanted to try and paint it pretty fast. So I got interested on the first weekend, um, and really enjoyed painting her. That's quite fast. Yeah, it was by the end of the Sunday, I think, having picked up the box on the Saturday. Um, <laughs> and um, really, really enjoyed the process of painting that model. She, I mean, she was obviously like, you know, a darling of like a lot of the painters doing stuff for Dominion around launch. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to try and mimic the coloring on the Corbett cover where she is seen like, pl- she's like a Valkyrie plunging a kind of spear made of light into a, the guts of a massive chaos beastie of some kind. Incredible bit of art. It's an amazing bit of art. And her pose her pose for the actual uh, miniature is very, very, very different. She's yes. standing imperiously on a wall. But <laughs> I wanted to try and mimic some of that. So the, the only kind of interesting challenge in painting that model, I think, was the spear tip, which in the art is like blazing white. And yeah. it almost like it's super heated or it's literally turning into lightning. And the trick with this is, is like white energy is incredibly hard to paint. Like, cause it just looks like you didn't paint it basically. <laughs> um, because, you know, white is its own, white as a material, white is a, you know, white armor or white cloth is its own mm-hmm. thing, but like glowing white is really hard to do. And so I ended up trying to paint like a prismatic effect on it effectively. Like it's a very, very faint gradient from very light blue to light pink and light yellow um, with like a blast of white in, in the middle. But I was really pleased with how that came out because it's sort of, it's, it's very hard to get that lighting effect on a, obviously a physical static thing. And oh, yeah. an animal object, as you rightly pointed out earlier. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that, yeah, it's yeah. hard enough doing power swords normally, but that, I think particularly that sort of um, lightning weapon, like you were talking mm. about on that piece of cover art, is extremely difficult to do. And 
your investor is incredible. I meant to say at the time as well, you're um, you're two hopeful humans. I don't know how hopeful they are given their witch hunters. And some of the nicest faces I think I've seen on painted miniatures, they're incredible. Thanks, man. I so I like part of that is like putting the time in to try and learn how to paint faces, basically, like looking at a lot of references, like just like, as in looking at like real, like portraiture and yeah, stuff yeah. and trying to figure out how artists do it and then trying to learn again. So I am, you know, last couple of years, I'm throwing contrast on things, but I've had nice comments about Duralia particularly in her face. And this is one of those moments where I'm pretty convinced there's a rule where every hundredth pair of eyes you paint, you get right first time. <laughs> right. I, like I paint a lot of eyes and you fuck it up almost every time you've oh, yeah. one of them you have to paint repaint one of them she was a rare example of where like i got the eyes right first time and then looked at her and realized i can't i just shouldn't touch this ever again like i just like nope nope, er, nope stop back away you've done it like um because and it, it and i think it was for me it was an interesting thing because like fully openly and this isn't intended as like you know this isn't bullshit it was kind of unintentional, right? Like there's this element of like pupils end up where they end up. Sometimes you have your best yeah, intentions yeah, yeah. and you just, sometimes it works. And with this, one thing I thought was interesting about that model is I really wasn't sure about, she, she has two build options. One where she's wearing like the heavy witch hunter hat and one where she's not wearing a hat. And I actually painted both and was literally swapping them out, <laughs> trying to figure out which one I preferred. Um, but the hat covers up a ton of the model. And I, looking at the heavy metal paint scheme, particularly, I, I, I wasn't sure about the helmetless version until I realized that 100% of the reason for that was the direction her eyes are facing. And um, and the on the heavy metal scheme, her eyes are following her crossbow, which she is sort of holding slightly down. Mm. And it's an ambiguous pose because it could be that she's about to shoot something that's like crawling up in front of her, which would be, you know, a very Warhammer thing to do. Or she's... A, holding it at ease while looking for something else to shoot right mm. it's it's like it's the same thing you get if you're like your space marine holding a bolt gun is looking in the same direction as the bolt gun or not um and i sort of thought well, i'm going to try painting her so that she's looking to the horizon and it just sort of like suddenly when i didn't fuck it up the it it you know the, the whole model kind of clicked together for me and now i genuinely she's one of my favorite models i painted i think yeah, like you i think i'm really proud of her I really just want to put her in every army that I do, apart from Daughters of Cain, because she just feels wildly out of place. <laughs> I was, there's, they're really cool models, and I really love the rules they have in the game. Uh, and I'm so sad that they absolutely cannot go in my one Grand Alliance Order army, uh, because they are elf-only racists. Really? Uh, oh, because Eidnethar, yeah. Eidnethar, yeah. No, yeah, they're the only racist elves, apparently. <laughs> oh fuck's sake Eidner. um uh, which is a, a maybe they can't the swim around the motor maybe that's yeah wrong. yeah well they're wearing well the, the vendents are wearing heavy leather trench coats <laughs> i really like so i mean i have really enjoyed how so there's not to get off topic too much but I thought they'd done a really good job with these characters of having a version of witch hunters, which is such a classic kind of Warhammer fantasy thing that aren't sort of wildly dystopian, basically mm. like they, I mean, in the, in that story, they are the ones trying to hold like a kind of cosmopolitan fantasy city civilization together um, and root out the chaos cultists and things that are trying to sow um, the seeds of like 
mutual distrust and and ultimately like persecution. Yeah, and they're not that, 40k models transported into AOS, right? I think that's why they work so well because that right. could easily have been the route they went. Yes, and I have no doubt that these will get converted into Inquisitors <laughs> because if it is on a twenty-eight, if it is a twenty-eight <laughs> mil miniature. <laughs> And Every AOS model that comes out, 40k <laughs> yeah. players rubbing their hands together. How can I turn this into a Voidbringer? Exactly. Um, um, but, and this is actually just a sort of a point to say, like, I really want them to stick with that angle. Because, like, um, I really like the rules for um, for the Defendants as well. I think they're legitimately fun for 115-point mini-heroes where they hunt endless spells. And that's a really cool thing to have in your back pocket. And, you know, uh, and I hope they stick with that, which is the, the minor caveat there is I've just also finished reading the uh, Dominion tie-in novel, which completely rows that back and goes in completely the opposite direction with Witch Hunters and the Order of Vizier and turns them into mm. abs- just the Inquisition from 40k, 100%. And there's, but there are enough other kind of strangenesses with that book's um, sense of AOS fiction that... I don't really, I'm not personally counting that. And I, I, I imagine my Vendence, or at least Duralia, are going to have a home with my Stormcast, which is the other thing I've been doing. So this is, might be heresy, I guess, for this podcast or its predecessor, but I'm painting Stormcast now, I guess. And so I've done, I've, hopefully by the end of next week, I will have done all of the Dominion Stormcast. I've done about half of them to, to finish the state now. So I've done, Five of the Vindictors, the Spear people. Um, I've done the um, the Lord Imperitant and his dog. I have done Big Beach Flag Boy, whom declare that summer is right here, right now. Um, and is that it? That's it. And I've, I've built Primed, Pre-Shaded, and Varnished all the rest. Um, and that was really fun as well. Stormcast is really fun to paint, turns out. Um, like... Uh, fun to come up with my own scheme, my own sort of sense, my own fiction for a little custom storm host. Come up with some cool sort of details that I want to do to establish like each each of my units is going to have to be from a different realm and sort of like, but that'll be subtly indicated through little details and things. Made the decision to paint all of the stripes on the flags as if they were rays of sunlight. That was a mistake. Yeah. I was going to say it. Broke into jail <laughs> there. Um, <laughs> um, but other than that, I've had a, a really nice time with that. And um, and then because we had a game coming up and you're absolutely right, you know, upcoming games are basically the best reason to do anything. Um, I also painted a slaughter priest, <laughs> um, just cause I needed a third one. Um, uh, that was really fun and love painting corn. And because I love painting corn, um, I ended up, as I say, building, spraying, priming, pre-shading all of my remaining Stormcast from Dominion, which I really want to finish before the next wave of Stormcast arrive because I want to get that army to 2,000 points and then stop. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I did the only logical thing, particularly with someone with obviously a, a, a vampire project pending and, and cruel boys sitting there looking at me from the corner of the Dominion box, and I painted Scarbrand, um, who will be finished tonight, maybe if I have time after we record this, or tomorrow. Oh, that's um, exciting. So... Um, Corn's biggest, stupidest son. He's um, yeah. It's an interesting model. I'm I'm sure you'll make it look much better than most other people make it look. Uh, but it's a it certainly is a, a bloodthirster. He's he's an angry bloodthirster with tattered wings who's doing a yell, <laughs> doing and a big old yell. My uh, my overriding experience of uh, 
of Scarbrand is failing over two turns to uh, to kill him uh, at Brotherhoods, only for him to then completely one shot with mortal wounds my unit of storm fiends. Uh, yeah, he'll do that. Utterly tabling the rest of my army in a in an outcome that me and my opponent did not see coming. Uh, both of us thought <laughs> that game was so scaven favored, uh, and he just completely walked it um, via the power of being real angry. So Scarbrand's thing in AOS is he is it's interesting because he's the bloodthirster that can fight, which is a weird thing to say about bloodthirsters, <laughs> but it's true. Yeah. Um, um, his thing is, um, unlike most of the characters in, in, in with degrading profiles who, who get worse as they take damage, Scarbrand gets better as he takes damage, reflecting yes. how much angry he's getting to the point where when he is very close to death, um, he deals an absolutely extraordinary amount of damage and then dies. Yeah. Um, so my, yeah. my tip there would be don't leave him on one wound. Yeah. Uh, just don't do that if you can. I really love any game piece. I, I maybe, maybe this is a decent um, segue to talking about Age of Sigma Third Edition because me painting Scarbrand, like I'm quietly like I'm, I'm one of the reasons I keep going back to Corn is like I'm quite close to done with that collection. There's, a, there's one more unit I don't own that I want to paint. I've got some other things on the backlog, and then that is done. That is a painted full force that I will just you know be happy playing with forever. Um, and um, Scarbrand was one of those things that I knew I really wanted to include because um, sort of rounds out the identity of the army a bit, but particularly because I really like any unit in the game that forces interesting mind games, bad decisions to your opponent and things like that. And I think all monsters introduce that now, but also of the many things we could say about Age of Sigma is it feels like more than ever, um, it is now a game that at the you know, can, can work and can be played at many different levels. And I think we'll talk about two of them when we talk about the games that we played. But I think particularly at the, the level that you and I think about it the most, the sort of the match play kind of competitive level, um, increasingly revolves around a sort of a cast of big characters, some of whom are, you know, godlike in their power level, some of whom are just a more um, niche in their use. Some of whom are vampire lords and zombie dragons. Some of whom are vampire dragons and zombie dragons, but a lot of whom are named characters. Yes. Um, who sort of, for me, and the way I've come to think of it, exist as this sort of almost like a, a roster of special characters that sit on top of the game itself that have their own internal meta. And I think this was, this was true beforehand, but it feels like mm-hmm. it's now codified as like a core part of the game, right? Like you have characters like Teclas and Marathi and Archeon and Gotrek and Scarbrand and Bellacor, who maybe not be at the same power level to each other, but that into, or even Alinda and, and other characters, but you kind of need to know what all these characters can do and throwing them in and out of matchups is exciting to me. It's one of the reasons I chose to do Scarbrand to kind of round out that aspect of my my corn army like to me it makes me think of a fighting game or like or something we both like dota for example where these characters um each change the dynamic of the game simply by being in it and yeah yeah, um and that sits on top of the you know general units fighting each other war game the aos otherwise is um i for one think this is kind of neat I understand that opinions are as ever, you know, obviously mixed, <laughs> mixed. but yeah. Uh, I think it's neat. I think uh, 
there's a tend I think there's a reflexive tendency that's maybe a holdover from 40k maybe it's a holdover from fantasy battle to feel like special characters shouldn't be uh that big a part of the the tabletop game um but they're they're so integral to on every level of age of sigma now like all through the law all you know if you um collect Grand Alliance death, or if you're interested in that side of things, you know, all of the novels there, they're about the Mortarks specifically. Um, they're about those characters and they are too integral to ignore, really. And I think you're right in that in the past, they'd never really knew what to do with these models. Um, yeah. They sort of bounced them around in between uh, unplayability talking competitively obviously you can play with them uh or being ridiculously overtuned and they're sort of finding this i was gonna say finding their feet with them now i i think they definitely have decided what they need to do with them which is that they're here to stay they're absolutely a part of the game that everyone needs to be aware of um you know it, it it's almost unthinkable to imagine a Daughters of Cain army that does not have Marathi in it, for example. Like she's uh, in match a, play. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Of course. Uh, and maybe, maybe she's the most extreme example of it. But um, you know, Archeon, incredibly powerful in Age of Sigma Three. Like you, and like you said, warps the game that's happening around him by the nature of that power. And that's fluffy. That's thematic. And I think it's good that your your big name character isn't going to instantly die now, uh, most of the time. Yeah. Um, but yes, there are potentially knock on problems, uh, knock on bad feel problems that that come out of this. I I wonder if maybe they're worse in non competitive play than competitive play. In competitive play, because you're expecting to face them, you kind of. Mm. You're building uh, armies that theoretically, or you should be building armies that can deal with them, right? If you uh, are going to an Age Sigma 3 tournament tomorrow, you should probably maybe expect that someone will be putting Marathi, Gotrik, um, Archeon, maybe not so much Nagash, on the table. Uh, and you should expect to be able to deal with that. And if you're just having a kickabout with your mates, that can be more problematic. Because uh, if you're just putting the models you want to play with on the table, um, having a particular model that, on the other side of the board that demands a set of abilities to be dealt with can create a bit of a negative play experience. So I, I, hmm. I see why people complain about it because there is this um, this sort of legacy of people being against special characters um, in the in the game, but I. I think over time people will learn how to how to deal with it uh, on, yeah. in the competitive level maybe not so much Gotrick, but uh. i think <laughs> i think it's interesting because i think it's i think it's like when anything changes in a game or is even clarified like mm. i think it's more to say that like the game has always had an anxious relationship with the presence of these characters and obviously yeah. a decision kind of had to be made about whether to centralize them more or push them more to the fringes and I think that decision is made for them but on the basis that these are some of also some of the best models <laughs> that yes, they have ever yes. made. Yes. And so, you, you know, it would just feel so strange if it was like, okay, yeah, Marathi and the Shadow Queen, they're amazing models, but they're, they're display pieces. You don't actually play with them. Like, 
And so I can understand why it's gone the way that it has. And I understand all the different angles on this. I think part of it is simply aesthetic. Like some people like the feeling that like my army isn't led by these main characters from the fiction. It's a mm-hmm. bunch of people that I've come up with and they yeah. are, it's my force. And the thing I would say to that is like, that's one of the things I think is really strong about, I appreciate we're kind of th- talking about some of the things that third edition has resulted in rather than, um, how it has gone about doing these things, but mm. maybe that's not a bad way to talk to, to go about it. Talking about the effect. I think third edition of iOS in, in feeling like it is more at the competitive end has found a kind of, um, uh, a meta in and amongst these special characters has kind of managed to has succeeded at being a game that both allows for, you know, narrative play battle or kind of simulation of battle between mass ranks of troops and unnamed generic heroes and also now scales up to offering kind of like meaningful, pretty interesting competitive strategy between armies led by gods mm. without having to do what other game systems have had to do and scale massively to fit that. So there's basically there's, you know, I think you're right to say there's, there's almost like two different kinds of 2000 point game. Yeah. Um, and crucially, they're both 2000 point games. It's not like, you know, Arcane is the model you bring out when you play Apocalypse, right? It's um, it is a playable and interesting game with him in it. It's just a slightly different game, mm-hmm. and you need to be ready for that. And I think, I think, I think what that means is, um, for for casual play, it's certainly the case that it's, it's you should probably have a conversation. You yeah, know? like I mean, I I mean, I you know, we'll maybe talk about this a bit later, but you know, for one of the, the games that I have played so far, I did have that conversation, which was like, hey, I'm thinking of running this would you mind if I played Marathi? I'm completely cool if you don't want me to, yeah. you know, like, and that, that I think is the kind of thing to normalize, but broadly speaking, they feel like I, they feel more comfortably part of the game now than I think they were before. Partly that is also just, there are more of them and increasingly every faction has access to this sort of power. Um, yeah. One way or another, obviously there's going to be big meta winners any given time, but it doesn't. It certainly doesn't feel like there's only one way to gain this sort of power, or, or one faction that can access it. Yeah, and I mean they are all meaningfully different to each other as well. That meta thing is, um, you know, something's always uh, good, right? Something's always mm-hmm. going to be better than other stuff. Um, it hasn't meaningfully been these kinds of models ever in the history of Age of Sigmar. Uh, so I think no, that not really. Maybe is part of why. Um, people are so thrown by it just because it, it's it's very new for the game. I mean, even when uh, people were at the height of complaining about Nagash, it wasn't Nagash that was the problem. It was his 30 Grimgrass Reaper friends. Um, right. So, uh, yeah, I think it, partly the shock of the new and partly the fact that I think, like I said, if you don't have the tools to deal with them, you can't deal with them. Um, and that's yeah, look, so game warping uh, in a in a way that can be negative and can be good. Yeah, it's um, interesting. I think I think for me, part of the benefit in terms of both understanding, having a sense of this competitively and aesthetically, is like you know my introduction to competitive war games was X Wing, as I've talked about many times, mm-hmm. and you know named characters with game warping special abilities are a <laughs> understood and central part of that game. Yeah. And occasionally you would play a game very rarely where it's like, hey, should we just take generic pilots and you just take generic red squadron X-Wings versus a bunch of generic black squadron TIE fighters? And it was fun. And it's about as close as X-Wing gets to narrative play. 
but most of the rest of the time you are going to be flying around with Luke and Wedge and Suntia Fell and you know um Emperor Palpatine shoved and, in a Lambda shuttle. And Palpatine doing wheelies in a big shuttle. <laughs> um um handing out evade tokens uh, functionally. Um and so like, you know, you get used to that and you get used to thinking of the game slightly differently as like a clash between kind of characters and archetypes that you're fond of rather than um, a literal simulation of a historical battle. So hmm. it's, I find all this stuff super interesting because it is, it does exist at the intersection of like, or well, it exists at the center of one of these questions, which Mohammed definitely sits at the heart of, which is what is this? Is this a competitive <laughs> miniatures game about assembling a list out of a roster of fantasy characters and making them fight? Is it more like a historical battle game where you create a force to match a particular story or, or event and then simulate that? Is it a campaign game? Is it, uh, you know, um, and the answer is yeah, basically, to all of them. <laughs> all of it, it's yeah, just, yeah. I'll, yeah. Have, I'll so, have one of everything, mate. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think whenever the answer is yeah to everything, um, it's always possible for someone to go, but I don't like that this other thing is even possible. <laughs> mm. Even if my non my games are actually like that. But anyway, I think I think what we should do is, is before we get into the Battle Report stuff, is offer a bit of a, uh, a primer on what has changed because maybe from the outside it doesn't look significant, but it does feel like a significantly new game. I think OS post all of this. Oh yeah. I mean, compared to the changes between AOS one and AOS two, uh, whilst AOS, whilst the AOS one to two change was probably a greater percentage increase in number of rulebook pages. Uh, the actual changes to the game as it played were pretty minimal. Um, they were very similar, really. As yeah. AOS 3 feels like the biggest departure yet from that original four-page rule set. Um, and uh, mostly pretty successful. Um, if you yeah. I, Let's hit up the, the main changes, I guess. Yeah, I think, I think we can talk about main changes. I don't think we'll ever get to anything in a amount of time, everything no. even in the amount of time no, no. we want to listen to it. But I think it's worth touching on the the big beats. And I would say that, you know, to people who's primarily interested in the game aesthetically, you know, one thing to say is that, um, it almost feels like the entire game has moved into the realm of beasts for a season. Like this is the sort of, um, they're now using rather than realm rules being sort of something you pick from every potential realm. It now feels Mm -hmm. like we're getting a realm a year, which is a nice idea. Um, you know, yeah, it's a bit like a season pass in a video game with a theme or something like that. Yeah, this yeah. year's theme is the realm of beasts. It's where the narrative is centered. And so, you know, I think it lets them get the realm rules, right? Yes. Uh, every other attempt they've made has been a pretty dismal failure. It's either been too much, uh, or it's been, you know, but the original uh, match play realm rule set where each realm had six spells of command ability. Yeah. It's just, that was too much. And then they cut it back to almost nothing. Uh, and we we did play a game with those rules, and they were so unimpactful. You might as well have not bothered. Yeah. Um, so it feels like this time they've got it right. It feels thematic, and it feels uh, impactful, but not so impactful that um, you know it's warping the core game in any particular way. It's uh, it's a nice right. bit of flavour. But I think also the part that is it- it kind of is the core game as well, though, right? Like, and that's one of the reasons that I think it feels more natural is that, like, even you know, and I mean that in two ways. One is that, mm. like, 
this theming is now present in everything, right? The names of the battle plans, the yeah. the narrative behind, even in match play, the narrative behind the games you're playing. You're like, it's it's laser focused on one thing, and I think that's very successful getting everyone on board. But also, it's become part of the core game in that this year's match play objectives, which you know we can't get past the, the the specific objectives you're seeking in in, in competitive games. Um, to the abilities you have access to are very themed around monsters and countering monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, obviously we can talk about the fact that the new edition has given special actions to monsters to let them yell at each other and knock down <laughs> buildings and stomp on things. And yep. that will, I imagine, stick around regardless of whether or not the lens of the, you know, the focus of the year moves to somewhere else. Yeah. Um, but it's also, it means that this, you know, um, this has come alongside a set of changes to the core rules, reflecting the fact that it's set in Gur now, where you get extra points for doing something with monsters. You also get extra points for killing monsters. And so there's now this sort of, it feels like it's it's very successful at using the realm rules to clearly focus thematically and mechanically on a particular aspect of the game, play with that for a year, and then mm-hmm. move on to something else. And I think that's a really cool, a really cool idea. Yeah, and especially what's cool about it is that most of that... Um, theming is sort of compartmentalized into the general's handbook battle pack mm-hmm. um, which means it would be very easy for them like I say next year new general's handbook pick a new realm and ha- do fairly significant changes to how people play the game uh, with those match play in that particular battle pack because the general's handbook is now match play only yeah. um, it would yeah be very easy for them to do nice thematic changes shake up the game it's just what people want i think the other set of big changes um kind of surround heroes more generally in terms of basically everything heroes do using and spending command abilities Mm -hmm. a new set of special abilities that both heroes on both sides get to do at the start of every turn and this adds a lot to one of the reasons that these big god heroes are so powerful now um but also one of the stated aims, and I think this is successful in the games that I've played, is to make sure that turns themselves are more interactive in more phases, basically. Mm-hmm. There are more actions that can be taken in phases that are not your own, whether that's moving in your opponent's movement phase reactively as a command ability, whether yep. that's AOS's version of Overwatch called Unleash Hell, which lets you shoot when you're charged or when someone near you is charged. And like... um Obviously, each of these things has their own impact on the game. But in the games that I've played so far, the thing that stood out to me is that I am paying closer attention to what my opponent is doing because my time to react to it is not necessarily just when my turn rolls back around. Yes. Yeah, they they very obviously looked at complaints that um, AOS isn't hugely interactive outside of the combat phase. Yeah. Uh, And... This can be exacerbated by the fact that double turns do exist, will always exist, and um, have combated that. I think um, it's interesting. Yes, I agree with all those things are true. Um, So the heroic actions, you get to do yours in your opponent's turn. Brilliant. Um, The command ability to to move and things like that all out defense uh theoretically as well this all adds extra interactivity is great oh i really like is it's not necessarily interactive but it's giving me more to think about in my opponent's turn is the battle tactics as well uh which is a yeah. match play change not necessarily a core rule change but it gives you um because you're picking one in each of your turns 
uh, as like a secondary objective, you've got much more to think about um, whilst your opponent's moving their models. You can sit there and think about, okay, what am I doing next turn? How do I achieve that? What do, what do I need to pick here? I think giving you that extra thing to think about as well is is really good. I think that's really successful. Yeah. Um, it feels a lot tighter, I think, would be the way I'd put it. Um, mm. There's, you know, the, the, obviously the, the board is smaller. That's, that's one thing. <laughs> but there's just fewer exceptions to rules and a bit more standardization in terms of what you're trying to achieve. Like I've, I've liked all of the battle plans that I've played. Mm-hmm. Um, and broadly speaking, like various changes to the way, you know, buffs and modification work so that rerolls are less common now than straight plus or minus, you know, you know, buffs and debuffs to uh, hit targets or, or roll targets. Yeah. That, I mean, that's generically true, obviously battle tone dependent. And I imagine yes. that as the new battle tones come out, the old, Sources of rerolls will be toned back uh, dramatically. I would yes. hope anyway, um, because their new system of modifying the original roll itself rather than um, providing rerolls is just much faster. It, more than anything yeah. else, it's just a, yeah. a quicker way of of getting that dice rolling out of the way. So that feels really good. Um, apart from when. Uh, you know, you're layering it on top of old battle terms that hand out rerolls like candy, uh, which we both play. Uh, so yeah. hopefully, as the edition matures, uh, that will get even better. Yes, I, th- I think so. Like, I mean, at the moment, like, I don't really mind that. It's part of the the interest of the game at this point is hmm. like, um, at the moment, every single faction has a different relationship with this set of rules, whether it's a very old book that needs an update because the faction is suffering, whether it's an old book that needs an update because the faction has one big out of this, um, <laughs> or whether it's somewhere in the middle. And like, um, I'm actually personally really enjoying the hunt for interesting new interactions as they kind of interplay between the different mm-hmm. parts of the game. But yeah, maybe this is a, a good enough jumping off point to, to leap backwards in time. Well, I know, I know, um, to the games we played last week in a much sweatier time. So sweaty. Right, so we've got quite a lot of AOS 3 to discuss. Yes, and an so, exciting amount. Yeah, really exciting amount. Um, so um, yesterday, at the time of recording, uh, you and I convened in your garden underneath yes. your battle gazebo. <laughs> <laughs> the wonderful gazebo that saved me from so much sunburn. Exactly, because we're not making that mistake again. Um, <laughs> to play not one but two games of AOS, um, we played, uh, and we can talk through both, a uh, sort of Path to Glory starter game using the new sort of narrative play system at yep. 600 points, and we played a 2,000-point match play game um, so that we could extract maximum salt from what was otherwise and already a very sweaty scenario yes um and so yeah so we should start we should talk through path to glory first i think but it's also a decent way into the new yes um, it was also the one we chronologically played first it is indeed so 
Let's, I mean, and then it only makes sense. So we, we basically, I know it was an opportunity for both of us because Path to Glory, which works a little bit like 40K's crusade system mm. is, you know, it's an opportunity to build up a force that has, you know, gains a story as it goes and invites kind of narrative investment in that way. It also feels like an opportunity to play with things that you might not otherwise um, play with. Absolutely. Um, and also I realized this after the fact, it felt like a nice opportunity. Both of these games had an element for me of finally getting to use models that I painted over last winter, early this year. And in this case, this was the first outing for the whole Daughters of Cain army I painted in the time since we last managed to play a game in real life. Obviously an yes. army I've used a bunch on Tabletop Simulator, but actually I've literally never played a game with those models until now. So um, I built my force around a sort of a very beginning, you know, sort of um, sort of baby kernel of a Daughters of Cain force. I can't really like, I don't really have a wide enough Daughters of Cain collection and it's not really a wide enough army that mm. I could pull out something really weird that would never see the table otherwise. But it was nice to, the equivalent for me was it was nice to kind of break away from the t- typical sub factions and play with sort of artifacts and combinations that I wouldn't normally see. So my kind of concept was a sort of expeditionary force of Kainate agents led by a Malusai iron scale with two units of blood sisters, um, you know, a ha- glaive wielding snake women, uh, a unit of Kainerai harpies, spear wielding bat women, and a hag queen. So an on foot um, priestess of Cain. One, one solo, perfectly normal woman. Yes, exactly. One totally normal elf. She's holding a goblet of glowing blood, but other than that, she's wholly normal. Um, and this is my so nascent uh, path to glory force that went up against your Skaven. Yes, so Skaven's an army I've used a fair amount, but I've got quite a large Skaven collection, but as a limited amount as ever really seen the table uh, due to the nature of when I've used them. So this, for me, was quite an exciting opportunity just to play with models in that army that I've never played with before. Um, so... Um, I themed it around, wasn't like a pure clan scryer army, but it was, um, it was like a scryer archer warlock who was looking for a way to build his own storm fiends. Uh, and so to do that, he set off into the mortal realms with, uh, his bodyguard of 10 scryer acolytes who are, um, like poison wind globe throwing rat men wearing gas masks. Mm-hmm. Um, his uh, Doom Wheel, uh, which is, uh, well, <laughs> you probably know what a Doom Wheel is, but it's a large wheel filled with rats with a huge gun on the front uh, that can run run people over, excitingly. Uh, and finally, some perfectly normal rat ogres that are never going to get pumped full of warpstone and turned into much bigger rat ogres at a later point. Uh, but that's, that's all he had with him for the start. So... Amusingly enough, for me running Skaven, you outnumbered me fairly heavily. Yeah, right. Um, which is unusual, is also for a snake-based Daughters of Cain army. Um, mm. And it's interesting as well because, without skipping too much ahead to the, the way the game played out, six hundred points is is very very small, right? Yes, like it's 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 not even starter box levels. And with any small, with, certainly with any sub thousand point game of Edge Sigma, but even at that level, um, things can skew very hard. Um, and you're not going to get a tremendous number of interactions out of a game like that, really. Um, So the the way I would judge them is, like, how many sort of interesting moments and fun interactions were there? 
Yes. And I was actually quite impressed by how well both that sort of those those game those um, armies and the scenario, which we can talk about a bit in mm-hmm. a moment, held together at such a low points value. Yeah, I think we both realised quite quickly that the game was probably going to be over in about two turns, one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, and it was going to be pretty decisive. I think the thing I found uh, most difficult was actually writing a 600-point list. So the the actual particle force I put together was like 545, and there's just impossible to slot anything useful into that remaining. It's five points off being able to afford some giant rats is what I'm saying, and it really stressed me out. <laughs> Yeah, I I ended up at five nine five, so managed to use it a little bit more. Kind of, mm-hmm. um, I mean, neatly. I absolutely could have not taken the arch warlock, who was a very expensive hero, I'd taken mm. something much more optimal uh, and managed to fit more in. But I wanted to use that model, uh, so I did, and it's not really the end of the world. Yeah, I mean, that's the point of the point of the mode, exactly. right? Is is yeah. to use this stuff like. You know, I um I don't actually really use Daughters of Cain priests in a lot of my competitive Daughters of Cain lists anymore. So it was nice to kind of use them and use them on foot. And I think actually um, we could talk about this in addition. I'm sure we will. The thing about these modes is that they, I think, particularly good at bringing out um, making abilities that you would never really see the impact of in a bigger game, um, making them felt at smaller point values. And so there's quite a few sort of little heroes that are fun for that. Um. The scenario we picked was called uh, the, the ritual. ritual. Yeah, um, and the, uh, the the theme is effectively one side is attempting to enact a ritual, the other side is attempting to stop it. There's been a ton of battle plans on this theme in the history of Age of Sigma. This one's fairly straightforward in that the defending player has to defend the ritual site, and for as long as they're holding the ritual site at the end of the round, they generate a certain number of points based on whether they hold the ritual site and some um, sort of uh, like auxiliary um, arcane objectives. And then their points total is deducted from by it's sort of D six and D three roles is deducted. If the attacking player is holding any of the auxiliary sites and they don't Mm. generate any points at all, if the ritual site itself has been taken and I think it's, yeah. The auxiliary sites are what make this the most interesting version of the ritual that has existed. Yeah. So I think previous versions have just been all about the one objective, and I think Age of Sigma is quite a poor single objective game. Mm-hmm. Uh, always has been. So I think this is this is the best version of that scenario they've come up with. Yeah, and the, the long term goal for that player is to get to the end of the game having amassed a, a, above a certain amount of points, basically. Um, without so trying to gain that comfortable lead and charge up the ritual till it goes off. And we actually rolled off to see who would attack and defend. Um, and I thought it was nice that um, one thing I really like about playing narratively is to not go in with an idea of what the narrative is, particularly early in a campaign, but sort mm-hmm. of discover it through playing. And I feel like both of our factions, both the kind of like highly, you know, sort of cult-like Daughters of Cain and Skaven have completely different ideas of what a ritual would be, but it would work for either of yes. them. Yes. Um, and in this case, though, it was your Skaven defending a ritual site, which we kind of themed up as a kind of like, you know, sort Warp of stone rift yeah. kind of thing um, with Daughters of Cain sort of um, slithering in to stop stop them. And, and then that sort of clicked something in my brain. I've always thought of this army as sort of fairly shadowy agents of Marathi. But I feel like even shadowy agents of Marathi still do the business of Grand Alliance Order every now and then. 
So this sort of, you know, this, this sort of kicking, this is kicking, kicking off the, the little narrative campaign with them really, really probably acting on, on the behalf of, you know, citizens of the mortal realms everywhere. Mm. Whether they keep doing that is really a question of whether Tom joins in and whether maybe they start killing some Stormcast. But that's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but that was, it was kind of a nice sort of setup in that regard. Yeah, some uh, mysterious beastmen have apparently appeared, I guess, mm. uh, if we're still doing that live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, I mean, they don't, you know, they don't want to be ousted as ratmen. Um, Daughters of Cain don't want to be ousted as snake women. So really, they'll keep each other's secrets. Even We've got this. a lot in common, really. <laughs> exactly. We're not so different. They scream at each other while they hunt their various flavors of realm stone and <laughs> turn into animals and fall down holes. Um and so, yeah, I'm trying to sort of skip through the blow by blow a little bit too much. Basically, but the other thing mm-hmm. maybe worth saying about this game is we chose to play it on a full size table. So we played it on the full size, you know, 60 by 44, whatever it is now for, for 2000 point match play, which actually didn't feel too bad because, and we no. did this because the objectives as they're laid out in the scenario are really close together and objective radius doesn't change with table size. So it would, they would have been, it would have been very this, cramped. Yeah. A lot of overlap potentially on them, um, and to be honest, we we're both playing with pretty fast armies anyway. So it didn't really, like you said, that playing on a full size table didn't feel too bad, didn't slow the game down. Um, and because the scenario focuses you onto these three specific points, uh, it yeah didn't really matter that we played on the full size board. I probably enhanced the experience, if anything. I think so, yeah. Because it also allowed us to set up a little bit of a more fulfilling environment that sort of mm. ruins with a sort of ritual site altar thing in the center of it. Yes. Um and then so the way the scenario is set up is the uh <laughs> the the defend so the attacker in my case um sets up their entire force and then you set up your entire force and but then the the attacker gets to choose who goes you know first or second in the first round, which yeah. felt like an interesting um, way of balancing the the scenario against kind of how you you know particularly set up. So I I chose to I wanted to be close enough that I could move fast and and you know get onto the objectives and start a fight soon. Yeah. Um. But I also didn't want to. Um simply line up at the closest possible point. I tried to use the train to kind of set up lines of cover. One little note there is the way the cover rule has changed means that you can stand behind a wall now and gain benefit from it rather than having to be on the wall, which just makes a ton of sense. Like I think there are probably going to be edge cases there where super rules is written. People get kind of arsy about it. But for you and I, it was really simple to say these snakes are lined up behind this wall. There are some windows in the wall but we accept this is cover and that felt yeah. very natural. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super obvious. I, you know, at the risk of saying this is super obvious and then in six months time yelling about it, it feels super obvious. Like, you know, it's your five snakes are behind a wall. You can see it. They, they get cover. It makes yeah, sense. Exactly. Um, Cause the thought that was going through my head at this point was I was very heavily considering giving you the first turn, knowing that, you have the benefit of, you know, more, more, more warp power and all of these other damage buffing abilities that I could shut yeah. down by taking the first turn to get to act before you could do them. But in a game like this, as you said earlier, I think we both knew this is going to be decided by a few key fights. Um, and in that mix, a double turn is massive. Yes. And so um, 
And so with that in mind, it was a case of, uh, I sort of knew at this point, I, I, I didn't want to deploy to make it obvious that I was going to give you the first turn, but I also didn't want, I also was thinking that that's what I would probably do. Yeah. I think in like normal 2000 points games of Age of Sigmar, like the early one into two double is mm. maybe not as decisively powerful as it's often thought of being. I think the later double turns are usually the, the more impactful. But yeah. on this style of game where there are so few possible interactions that can happen on the board, the early double is enormous. Yes. Or the potential of it anyway. So I think yeah. it's an interesting thing to dwell on momentarily because I think I think the reason people I think when you start playing that the first a double turn early in the game can feel so on your for your opponent can feel so demoralizing that you think it has a bigger impact than it actually does. Yeah. Like and, and that's it's learning to recognize that actually in a big game it's usually not that lo- game losing unless it's truly disastrous. Whereas, um, and I would say that's even more the case now with the way the scenario is designed. But yeah, obviously, uh, in this game, yeah, you know, there are times when it is completely decisive and there's not much you can do about it, and that does suck. But that, mo- most of the time, I think that's not true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what were you sort of? What were your plans going into into deployment and then into the first turn, which I obviously gave you? Uh, so. I mean, deployment, uh, I kind of deployed narratively, uh, with my arch warlock stood directly on top of what we rolled up as being deadly terrain, <laughs> uh, of, um, the, the altar that he was performing the ritual on. He didn't need to be stood on it. He could have been stood anywhere within the six inch radius. So that was stupid. Well, I mean, it, it was um, both also, deadly terrain and cover, which is a great yes. duality. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and then he sort of had his little bodyguard of acolytes, uh, screening him and then uh, because my force was quite limited in like the number of units that I had and there were three mm. objectives I sort of just had to skew to have the doom wheel presumably running to one objective on my left and then the rat ogres running off to take the one on the right uh, and that was the plan basically I knew I had to stand them somewhere mm-hmm. something was going to get charged because uh your snake army is incredibly fast. Yeah, when it wants to be. Uh, so I sort of um, put everything spread out, but still close enough within radius that I could command point everything if required. Uh, if you gave me second turn. Yeah. Yeah, so it was interesting going to the first one because the thing I was gambling going to the first one was to give you the turn, but you'd make sure I, but knowing I could use the heroic action um the willpower one to give an unbind to the um to one of my heroes to try and get rid of some of those spells to, to kind of like mitigate some of the impact of you getting your buffs up and that's a nice truth to be able to have like mm-hmm. you know particularly you know i think just generally it's just nice to uh, you know getting into talking about some of those new heroic actions and things you can giving away a turn doesn't shut down you're not then helpless in the face of what then can happen Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe uh, neither of us quite expected what then happened next in my first turn. I don't think either of either us were ready for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we're, we're both guilty of having, as people who are both interested in Skaven, um, mm-hmm. guilty of having underestimated wheels. Let's put it that way. Yes, uh, it was a wheelie good time for some of us. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Nice. Um, no, we're keeping it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, Doomwheel, absolute 
classic model, you know, it goes yeah. back. My earliest memories of Skaven were thinking about how cool the Doom Wheel was as a kid. Um, so whilst it's never really made it into any of my uh, full 2000 point lists, super cool model to put down in this. Like, And on the upper scale of... Um, the sort, the size of model you can really bring in Path to Glory at this size, yeah. Um, f- and it felt sort of suitably big because everything else was, you know, the snakes are quite large models, but they're still infantry essentially, and the rats are tiny. Um, so it felt like this big, imposing war machine that uh, it wasn't. It was my memory of as a child, which yeah. is quite nice. Enjoyed that, um, but it turns out that with more, more, more warp power, uh, which gives it the ability to reroll hits and wounds, and um, warpstone sparks to give it plus one damage, uh, it can it can do the biz as well. It can do the biz. So it, <laughs> I was my turn by it sort of trundling up, grabbing an objective, and then immediately blowing up a unit of snakes, just totally incinerating an entire. Just, just, yep, ten wounds of snakes gone in a flash. It just horrifically overkilled them, which was a, a shock to you and a shock to me at the same time. Right, particularly because every time you roll for the, the number of shots, you are in danger of blowing it up, which was something that I was, you know, kind of both hoping would happen, but also hoping wouldn't happen until it was the right moment. And it, it blowing itself up on the first time would have been hilarious, but then the opposite of that. It was very much a kind of, um, for me, one of those moments of like, I made a calculated decision to put myself at risk that I now regret. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those classic Skaven things where you can, it's a D6 shot weapon, which is obviously intensely swingy. It can be good, it can be terrible. Um, but uh, loads of Clan Scry units give you the ability to push your luck uh, in exchange for possibly blowing yourself up. So you can roll 2d6 shots on the Doom Wheel, uh, and if you roll a double on those shots, you take d6 mortal wounds immediately. Um, and obviously I push my luck every time. <laughs> yes, I would. As you cross your fingers desperately hoping for that uh, double to come up. Um which I guess influenced your decision on your next turn as well, as you realised pretty quickly that that was the model that needed to die. Yeah, and and also this the next so the next turn for me, um, well, it sort of influenced everything that happened next because I realised that like I I wasn't sure it's sometimes and this is a good thing at that at this point level you know um, those five snakes are a full quarter of my army right points mm. wise, um, and so I was like, is that the unrecoverable? blow that these games often come down to like and i wasn't sure if it was or not um but because i needed need to get into combat and see what i could actually do but it obviously did you know it's a it's a whole sort of activatable unit gone and so on my turn i sort of knew i had to go for it i had to bring the the harpies down um from their sort of circling in the sky um and effectively go straight for the ritual site because even though mm-hmm. the doom wheel was a big threat and off on the on a secondary on a side objective um, trying to kill it would just leave me exposed to everything else and wouldn't shut you down sufficiently, basically. So I knew I had to get my surviving um, snakes into into the fight. Um, I could buff them up quite a lot with Catechism of Murder from the Priestess, which gives them exploding sixes to hit, and then um, Wrath of the Scatheborn from the Iron Scale, which allows them to not only run and charge, but also run 2d6 rather than one. So they're su- that's the you know super fast snakes. So, so I was convinced fast. I could get them all the way up the board through a t- doorway and into your acolytes <laughs> if I needed them to um, and start causing some real problems there. Um, but the other thing I knew was that doing so 
would expose them to Overwatch from the Doom Wheel, basically, um, or uh, Unleash Hell, uh, AOS 3's version of Overwatch, which allows it, which is really different to its 40k equivalent in that it yes. allows a basically after a enemy unit finishes a charge move, any unit within nine inches of them, even if they weren't charged, can um, with the expenditure of a command point shoot, and it's only at minus one to hit. So it's not that um, punishing. And also on a unit that's super buffed up with more warp power and therefore is re-rolling both of those, both hits and wounds, very, very scary indeed. So yes. it's much more flexible and powerful than the 40k version, which is much, uh, unless you're playing Tau, is a very limited ability. Yeah. Um, there are limitations, obviously, you can only do it once and you can't do it if the shooting unit has a, a different enemy unit within three inches of them. Yeah. So my that turn had to be was was the question who who do i sacrifice <laughs> to get the snakes the the surviving unit of blood sisters into where they need to be and so i brought the harpies down behind the warlock behind the line um and then i moved up the the my other heroes sort of together towards the doom wheel and then the series of events after this was kind of really key because effectively the harpies have a rule where they throw their spears the turn they arrive and then they did that reasonably effectively and killed some acolytes. And then on a four up, they get to move six inches. So it's very powerful to be able to deploy outside of nine, but then move six yeah. um, because you can, you know, so I was hoping to use that to sort of charge into the rear of the acolytes, maybe even make a big charge into the doom wheel, charge the warlock, something like that. But unfortunately they, they failed the roll to see if they could move. So they were stuck nine inches away and they subsequently failed their charge, their nine inch charge, which is not unsurprising, but um, is the sort of that would that they would be my preferred unit to eat the unleash hell basically sure. if because they're the cheapest and that's kind of what they're there for. Um, that having failed, I decided to go in with the um iron scale into the doom wheel. Um, yeah. so my general, my warlord making a big Hail Mary charge, I think it was an eight inch charge to try and like shut down this murder wheel that had just incinerated the sisters that she was initially moving with. Um, and she did make a big old charge. And it was very important that she made this charge, but then you did the absolute right thing, which was unleash hell her. Yes. Um, and totally incinerate her in a single oh, yeah. blast of shooting. Yeah. So it, it turns out, um, you know, Skaven is a relatively old book at this point, and all those uh, hit and wound reroll buffs persist until your next hero phase, and they don't state a specific uh, kind of attack that they only work on. They work on Or a phase attacks. or anything so, like yeah. that. So they work on Unleash Hell as well. Uh, so it's just, even with the minus one to hit, it's just incredibly consistent damage. And uh, yes, uh, yeah. the Iron Scale charged into a hail of warp lightning. I'm just, yeah, absolutely incinerated. So that was my Warlord dead. So at this point, I've lost my Warlord. I've lost um, one of my two big units. Um, but then the... Um, the the Hag Queen failed her charge, but the other unit Blood Sisters did make a very, very um, healthy charge into the Squire Acolytes and completely murder them, basically. Yeah, predictably <laughs> slaughtered them uh, and piled into the uh, the Arch Warlock as well. Uh, um, I don't think that was... I think that was the next turn. I think cause, uh, So they, oh. they were in, but the Arch Warlock then ran away. Oh yes, of course they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he because the other thing I could have done was their kind of crystal touch, basically, to kind of um, yes. so they can tap mortal wounds on something at the end of the combat phase. And so that was because, and then this that was kind of a fairly important swing because it meant that I actually 
um, despite having lost so much, held the ritual site. Yeah, um, you because I yeah killed all of my bodies. Like everything else was either single or two model units, and so it was very it was very sort of. Uh, it cost a lot to get into that position, but it was actually a very, very strong position at that point because if you don't hold the ritual site, you can't do the ritual. And if you can't yeah. do the ritual, you can't win. So and then, then um, crucially, I got the double going into the next turn. The interesting yeah. thing about this was is it left the threat of all of that unleash hell still on the table. And I think it's um, fully buffed as it was with your yes. carrying over into your hero phase. And that's what's really interesting about that is that's a level of like, um, you know, they've said, and, and I, you know, it's, it's maybe, I don't want to repeat the advertising material too much, but they said they stated that one of the aims of this edition was going to be to kind of make, give you more options, give you more things to worry about necessarily, even when it's your mm. turn. And I think that's definitely still the case. Right. Um, and so in that turn, I um I knew I had to shut down the same thing again, basically. Yes. Like kill it. You know, I had ultimately I was gonna have to charge the Blood Sisters into the Arch Warlock, but doing so would again expose them to uh Jasper to um to unleash <laughs> hell from um, I'm certainly having hell unleashed on me right exactly, now. Exactly, from Unleash Meow from the Doom Wheel, the opposite of a cat. Um and I also there's obviously the opportunity the the chance that, that fails, there's a bunch of things that can go wrong there. So I also want to yeah. move the Kynerai in to try and sort of box out the um, rat ogres. And um, this also um, was a turn where I only had one thing that could go and potentially deal with the doom wheel. Um, and that's uh, a hag queen, which is not a character you'd never really expect to see charging into combat, but she has a few interesting things. Like she's no daughters of Cain character is a slouch in a fight necessarily and mm. one thing she can do is pray to Cain like ignite the rune of Cain and her sword and change her you know um what you know three up three up rend one damage one attack to damage d3 which is not terrible no, the, the, the push to d3 is a big change yeah and um and uh, I'd given her a, an artifact when constructing my force initially that allows her to pray three times with increased risk if she fails um and so I just decided to go for it. She catechism of murdered herself. She charged up her um, her crone sword. The harpies um, dis- uh, like went off to charge the rat ogres. Um, the snakes charged in to surround the um, surround the warlock where they were prepped to. And then, but in order to shut down Doomwheel. Uh, unleash hell the hag queen had to charge it by herself and she did with a big charge and then um again it unleashed hell and i realized at this point that i could try and because you have because unleash hell effectively gives you the option to shoot many more times than a unit would normally get to in the course of the game Mm. it does try and it does get to the point where i can almost try and draw out that fatal double (laughs) where you blow up but i'm just going to keep charging you and keep getting unleash held until you destroy yourself basically (laughs) um but once again, uh, that did not happen. Big hail of warp lightning comes with the Hag Queen. Does a decent amount of hits and wounds, um, even with Rend. And then I had declared that it was her finest hour for plus one to save, we should stress. Um, and then um, got boxcars on the save. And she just yeah. waded through a hail of warp lightning straight into the uh, Doom Wheel and proceeded to kick the shit out of it in a it way that glorious. I didn't expect. <laughs> yeah. it, it was it was incredible. She completely wrecked it. 
Um, I think it took two turns of combat in the end, but the Doom Wheel itself just completely spanned it. Because uh, I think in my next turn, in my rolling to shoot, uh, I rolled like a one and a two, like three shots, did absolutely nothing, and then she just absolutely kicked the hell out of it. Yeah. Meanwhile, the um, the Harpies got themselves absolutely flattened by Rat Ogres. Cause yes. They, they, they did quite a lot of damage to one of them with shooting, then charged in. It was on two health, and I figured fighting with them first would be a good idea because then it's half the damage output of the unit. Completely failed to do anything. And then they got sort of punched to pieces by a pair of big, big rat boys. Um, but my blood sisters were able to surround the arch warlock, kind of tank everything he could throw at them. Which is then, not much. Which is not <laughs> much. Um, and then they actually ended up killing him with the, with the crystal, crystal touch. touch. Yeah. So I think canonically, because we'd sort of themed the ritual site as a kind of swirling vortex, I think canonically he got turned into crystal, kicked through the vortex probably plopped back out in Skaven Blight somewhere to be now being shipped, shipped back free. out. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> um, uh, which is uh, of Skaven not necessarily known as being the greatest craftsman. So this would explain uh, him being chipped free probably explains how he ends up with the serious injury that I will later roll up for him. Yes, indeed. I mean, that more or less brings us to the end of that game, right? Because at that point, that was the... I just had the Ratogas left. Uh, yeah. So we, we called it there. Yeah, because they were... Um, dead <laughs> yes basically um but um but yeah and then we went through the aftermath step um which um i think the only kind of lasting effects afterwards was your um war- uh, arch warlock being injured for its next game um yes so my the arch warlock was uh got a serious injury uh and the uh the hero doom wheel um, because the way experience works is a, a lot like Blood Bowl, is you mm. you get to pick an MVP to get um, D6 Renown. Uh, and the increments of getting levels are it's every five, isn't it? You get a new ability. Or I think the first it's five, five, then 15, and then, yeah. So you can, off of that, it's unlikely, but you can, off of that first roll, get a level up. And that's what happens. The, the Doom Wheel... Uh, deservedly, I think, yeah. got itself uh, its first level of renown and uh, got better at shooting lightning, predictably. I ended up giving my MVP to the Blood Sisters because they were more likely to get the benefit of it um, and rolled so low that they didn't level up, which seemed unfair, <laughs> but whatever. I, sh- I mean, I think it's because I made a slightly non-narrative decision where the, the MVP really, really should have been the Hag Queen. Um, uh, to be honest, I mean, my, um, my warlord survived with, with no ill effects. Um, and the other unit of blood sisters that had been incinerated also survived without any casualties. So as in long-term casualties. And so apparently warp lightning is just something you just kind of walk off basically. Yeah, it's it's like, fine. A, like a big taser. Um, but I think nonetheless, the, um, the little hag queen that could, uh, such a tiny model in a, in an army of 40 mil bases. Yeah. Um, it was Jeez. really fun. And it felt like afterwards, also with the kind of glory earned and things like that, my list has expanded quite quickly and quite wide. Like I could go to a thousand points now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's quite nice that, you know, we're not going to be, you know, if we want to, we can, we can scale up. Yes. I think my uh, warband will need one more game to hit that point. I'm just, Mm. just below the glory threshold of really being able to bring in another unit, Um, which is fine because even if you do scale up the way path to glory works is you pick the um the points the game points value of the game you want to play and then you both build to that points value with 
the roster that you have. So if you've got more points than me, it doesn't completely yeah. imbalance the match because we just built that lower point and you pick what you want from that wider pool, which is quite a nice way to play. It's nice to have a little bit of sideboard that you can play with between games. I think it is way better than them trying the various ways that they've tried add catch-up mechanics or sudden-death mechanics or twists yeah. to, to help a lower, a less powerful force. The other big thing we should say about this is it explicitly uses points. Yes. Like, we've kind of, there's no power-level equivalent, but we've also kind of given up on the notion of sort of unit types or kind of other ways to kind of make, army to balance army building and narrative play. And that's something I would say more broadly, actually, that I really like about AOS 3 um, is... Um, their understanding of what the various types of game are and how they relate to each other and how they're common and crucially, and I think this is true of so much of it, how they are actually used feels a <laughs> lot more accurate. And then there's lots of different evident parts of that. The fact that the general's handbook is now just match play yeah. is, is a great example of that where um, obviously there was some really cool narrative and open play stuff in that book previously, but realistically match play is what it's bought for and used for. So find other homes for that stuff and just focus that one product on that. And in this case, the really big change that has taken place is narrative play is no longer a mode. It's a set of additional roles, rules that you apply on top of whatever other mode or battle pack you are playing. Yeah, And that's a much more, I think, um, it doesn't mean it's not a thing. It actually means it can be more of a thing because it can sit over open play, which is what this game was really, um, or it can sit over match play, which is how often a lot of narrative stuff was previously balanced. And so... It just feels so much more astute, like so much more in tune with how the game is actually um, realistically played. And I yeah. think, you know, and that doesn't mean that things weren't, you know, didn't work before. It was just, it feels like the the most sensible kind of house rulings and kind of subtle reworkings that people were doing have now just kind of been moved into the core of the game. And that, that yeah. just feels very, very positive to me. Yeah, like I, I've played Old Path to Glory. I played it with... Um, Tom previously, and we had a great time. Um, but you absolutely had to put more work in yourself to make those games work. And I think, um, new Path to Glory is obviously designed to be a much more drop in, drop out system rather than, um, previously, which was more of a, like an ongoing campaign. Me and Tom were playing each other in these linked battles. Um, that another person, a third party couldn't really walk in on and have a, a game with those armies because they were just yeah. completely out of whack with anything. There's no real way other than the conversation we were having before a battle to, to work out what these armies should look like. Yeah. And having, having new path to glory be bolted onto the system of main age of Sigma that includes points makes it much, much easier for that to happen. And it's interesting because it's also, it's clearly intended to be expanded um, in battle terms and, and kind of have things bought to. It says it in the main rule, yeah. right? It says there will be more Path to Glory content coming in newer battle terms. So pull one out for Soulblight Gravelords, I guess. Yeah. But it, oh, it does again, indeed. But, um, <laughs> but um, with that said, I don't feel the loss of that stuff. I'm excited to see what it looks like. And maybe I'll feel mm. more jealous of, you know, Stormcast or, or whoever, when they get their books. But at the moment, it feels yeah. like the generic content is, is quite healthy. I'd say the, the parts that I thought was maybe the most slight was the quest system. I think the generic quests 
There's a mm. lot that are very specific. Um, not every army has priests, not every army has wizards, and that cuts down the number of quests that you're realistically ever going to do. Well, um, it's interesting. Quite a small, because there's eight out of the box, but uh, almost half of them are sort of quite specific to you're hunting an endless spell, you're hunting uh, an invocation, you're trying to learn a new prayer, etc. So, Yeah, I think, I think the fact that they're called quests leads people to expect more from them than they actually are. Like my counterpoint to that would be what quests are, are an interactive way to expect to, to grow your power, expand your list, right? Mm -hmm. They are something that adds, there's something beyond simply earning glory through play um, that you can do to unlock specific upgrades and things like that. And that's actually a really cool system. I really like that. What they are not is a narrative um, no, uh, no, motivation not at all, but like I really, very but, much suspect that when the battle tomes come out, you will be getting battle tome specific quests as well as upgrades for units. Right? I think that seems like an I think easy thing for them to expand. Yeah, I, I absolutely suspect that. But I think um, I actually quite like the quest system because for what it does achieve, which is, for example, I wasn't really sure what to pick, but I decided, hey, I guess I'm leaning in on priests with this particular daughter's a cane force. Um, in my starting army, the, I couldn't learn the, the universal prayer heal. So you know what? I'm going to make that my quest. I'm going to unlock that. And I ended up unlocking it. And it had two criteria. One was simply spending glory after the game. And the <laughs> other was succeeding on prayer rolls of four or more. And that is not – what it's not is this is going to hand me a narrative that leads me from game to game. What it is is a way to take something that is sort of thematically true of my narrative force turn it into something that has a little bit more, it feels a little bit more tangible in the game itself. Give me something additional to think about and track and play for. It's a very, very simple system at the moment, but I think it, uh, understood as an, uh, an interactive form of um, power progression rather mm -hmm. than as a, um, a, a narrative, which is like, then I think it actually really does work and, and it will benefit from having more, but I don't think it necessarily even loses out from having less because you still have, you know, it is still, it taps into the massive variety of upgrades you could potentially choose from and the massive amount, number of different scenarios that could lead to or different thought yeah. processes or themes that could be brought in. I, I think the system's great. I think, yeah, it's a, it's a really good, you're basically picking your own secondary objectives and getting uh, out of the game upgrades for them, right? It's, yeah. you're doing stuff for your post-game sequence in the game, which is really cool. I think it's a really good system. Yeah. I do think there's, I do think the quests are a bit slight at the moment, but sure. possibly that's just because uh, the army you built, um, I think, had a lot of ways to take advantage of multiple different quests, whereas there wasn't really any that would have done anything for me at all. Right. Um, and I, I didn't complete mine in the end because I tabled. But um, even if I had completed it, uh, so I picked the one where you make two exploration rolls uh, and had... I completed it, I wouldn't have made much difference anyway um, because I didn't have enough glory to make use of that ability uh, by the end of the game. So it wouldn't have made a huge difference. Um, Fair enough, yeah. But, you know, in future games, when I have more heroes, more things to, to use, then presumably they, there will be more interesting quests available to me and it might seem more fun. But I guess that's, I guess if I had Path to Glory list-building advice... Uh, it would be, be consider the kind of quests that are available to you when you're building your list so that 
because you start off with um, your default command trait, artifact, spell, etc., if you only have the one hero, there's a lot of quests that don't do anything for you. Yeah. Um, because you can't give them more than one artifact. So uh, have you having that second hero opened up that ability for you to, to look for more artifacts if you wanted to, or more prayers. Yeah, I think two small heroes is quite a good rule of thumb, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, if I were to be approaching it as anything other than play with cool models I've never played with before, I, I think two small heroes would definitely have been the way to go. Should we talk about two really large heroes and what happened when they met? I think we should. So uh, the other game that we played was completely different. We played 2,000 points um, matched play on the scenario Savage Gains, which is the... Very funny name. It is a very funny name and very appropriate to the big, big boys we brought to bear. Um, what is what is the scenario this is the equivalent of from the old Game's Handbook? Ghost, forget the names. It is similar to one of them. Um, four is it obje- Border War? Yeah, I think it was Border War. Yeah. Four objectives, one on the line of each player's territory, two spread out in the middle. Um, you get one point for your own objective, two for the ones in the middle, four for your opponents. Yeah. Um, that's basically it. It's actually relatively straightforward objective scoring by the standards of AOS 3, mm-hmm. um, with additional points earned for completing your battle tactics, which are yeah. effectively the replacement for secondary objectives, and now they are declared at the start of every turn. Yes. Um, and they only last for that turn, and you can only do each one once. So they're a bit like Zinch's agendas in that in that way. Um, and then uh, extra points at the end for also completing your grand strategy, which is also another new thing, which is a secondary objective that you bake into your list, a list creation. Yes. Um, so uh, this game, the, the real purpose behind this for us was to finally do a match that we've kind of been promising. Um, as two people who painted Mega Gargants last year, to finally make them fight. Yes. Um, mm. So that was yes. that was obviously the big the big factor going into list building and the thing that everything else fell around. But um, yeah, let's talk about our armies first, I suppose. Okay. Um, so I was playing with Nighthorns. Uh, so I painted up a Gatebreaker Mega Gargants. Uh, this is the one that can ally with destruction or death. Um, I had actually played with him once before. I played him with my Iron Jaws. Uh, which is an army I have to constantly remind myself that I do have. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I wanted to play with something slightly different. And um, of the death armies I've got, I didn't really want to play with my flesh eater courts, uh, partly just because they're the first army I painted and they look rubbish. Uh, and looking at my Soul Blight Gravelords collection, it's just with the new book, just doesn't, you can't, I can't quite make a, like a real army with what I've got. It would be a very mm. silly looking army. Um, because my previous um, Legions in the Gash collection leaned quite heavily on the ghosts, um, which are no longer part of Gravelords. So what I've got is maybe a bit bit less of a, a real collection. It would just be a gaggle of heroes, which is not so fun maybe to push around uh, in terms of you. We're playing a match play game, but I think we we're still playing an aesthetic game as much as yeah, anything. yeah, yeah. So I went with the Night Haunt. Um, they're an army that lack that kind of big monster anyway, so it's fun to be able to add one in. Uh, gives gives the army something it doesn't have access to anyway, as opposed to maybe you know Grave Lords who do have these big fighty monsters. Um, so guessing that it gave me a chance to try out Night Haunt in the new edition. I suspected they were rubbish going in um, because they've always been rubbish. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see how that pans out. Uh, and. 
Yeah, so I wanted to try out the new Broken Realms rules for them as well, because they got something fairly significant from Broken Realms. They got sub-factions, which they didn't previously have. Um, so I tried out Lady Alinda's Emerald Hosts. Uh, so I had um, the Gatebreaker Mega Gargant's Big Drog Fort Kicker. Uh, I had Lady Alinda herself as my general. I had a Knight of Shrouds on Ethereal Steed uh, with his mandatory um, Magic Sword. Uh, then I had two units of five Hex Wraiths, um, because in the sub-faction I was playing, they can protect Lady Alinda. Uh, they can tank wounds for her, which is very helpful because she is quite fragile. Um, then I had a unit of 20 Grimgast Reapers, which is a single reinforcement. And then I had 10 Blade Ghost Revenants. And um, what else did I have? Oh, yes. Uh, little dog A ghosts. unit of eight Glaive, Wraith, Glaive Wraith Stalkers uh, for the Glaive Wraith Stalker fans out there. Uh, <laughs> I had 120 points spare, and it turns out there is almost nothing else you can spend 120 points on <laughs> in, um, in the in new money. So I gripped my teeth, and I took the Glaive Wraith Stalkers. And they certainly were models that existed on the table. How about you? Um, so I, I ran my... Uh, one-eyed Grunnock, so to speak, um, the the Mega Gargant War Stomper that can ally with Chaos, uh, with Corn. Um, I sort of always thought of him when I was painting him up as being either going to fit him with Slaves of Darkness or Corn most of the time. Um, kind of an interesting because Corn is an army that can field a lot of bodies and that mm. can um, can muster quite a lot of wounds, um, but has an interesting thing where both wants to wants to die at the exact pace that it wants to die. doesn't want to die either too slowly or, or too quickly. And um, Gronach is actually a kind of interesting thing to mix into that because Mega Gunk is hard to kill and takes concentrated firepower. Mm. And that itself is something that <clears throat> you kind of want to draw fire away from the things that you don't want to die too quickly. And the other side of it is his sort of special ability is after he's fought, he kind of applies this minus one to hit aura as he shakes the ground. A bit like, a, I think, Tree Lords do that. And yeah, so this is his ability for being taken in a as an ally, right? Yes. He, this yeah, isn't yeah. his na- So if yeah, you take him the in the Sunspare Hammer army, he doesn't have this. This is what he gains. Yeah, being allied in. And that's, again, something that um, debuffing is not something Korn necessarily does, really, apart from the mm-hmm. bravery thing. Um, and so it's something, again, the army doesn't have access to. I think it's a huge rule for the War Stomper as well, because uh, six yeah. inches is a big AOE. It's a huge base. And uh, yeah. Generally, I would say the War Stomper's probably the worst of the Mega Gargants, just natively mm. in Sons of Behemoth. Um, it's got sort of the weakest attack profile, and I think its particular subfaction in Sons of Behemoth is you're, it's the one you run if you're taking lots of, of the baby Gargants, and I think that's maybe the least exciting kind of Sons of Behemoth army. Um, yeah. But um, conversely, that is the biggest buff any of the Mega Gargants gain from being allies. Uh, so the Gatebreaker gains a, a relatively pathetic shooting attack. Um, and I have n- absolutely no idea what the Kraken Eater The Kraken Eater can choose to fight last in order for f- in return for full rerolls, which is not right. terrible. But, not terrible, yeah. But, yeah. but I think that minus one to hit aura is, is really big. Yeah. Um, and so I... I wanted to mix this up with a few other things. So I there's a few there's been a few corn changes um that have changed the way cornless building works completely. Um so uh, one of them is my kind of favorite 
combo previously, which was to take either a Manticore Lord from Sace of Darkness or a Carcadrack Lord from Sace of Darkness and pair it with some of the um, Gortide uh, Allegiance abilities and some other artifacts um, to build the kind of like super fighty Carcadrack that you fought before. Or uh, so yes. in this case, I thought I, my, my thought going into AOS 3 when you start to see the rules coming down the pipe was that, that was going to be an amazing thing to put in a Manticore Lord. Um, mm-hmm. who, who is, is a lot better now, benefits from all of the new monster rules and things like that. Um, but the problem, but the major change to the way coalition units work, where Slaves of Darkness units can absolutely be included, um, you know, uh, I think it's two and four can be Slaves of Darkness units, but they can't be generals, completely chops that off at the knees. It means that yes. it's, and so... Um, I mean, that's coalition's something. a completely new mechanic, right? So yeah. previously... Uh, you constructed armies based off of keyword. So yeah. you built corn armies based off of keyword corn. Now you build armies based off of battle tone. And you can bring in some specific armies have the ability to bring in units from other battle tones via this coalition mechanic. So that's completely new, right? It is. It's not limited in the way that allies are. Um, uh, well, in terms of what those units can benefit from, like artifacts and allegiance abilities, but it is limited in terms of number, strictly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also not limited by points in the way that allies are, but um, but that changes the way my corn list building has always traditionally worked. I've always liked to have a corn general who is big and fighty. Um, and actually, one of the interesting things about corn, they don't really have that no. natively. Like mortal corn lacks a very fighty hero, which is a weird thing to say. Even but- demon corn, I mean, you narratively you would think bloodthirsters would be extremely powerful melee threats, but they're sort of. They're not medium powerful melee threats. Yeah. And actually, so I ended up taking a bloodthirster as my general um, to give him some of the same allegiance abilities, but knowing that his damage output would be substantially less. Like I think there are very, you know, and so that, that was sort of interesting, to, uh, but I still think you need that character. And obviously bloodthirster is a monster benefits from, from the new allegiance ability. So not a bad choice. Yeah, um, the, but the stocks yeah. on any monster hero are, are up so high this edition because of the stacking abilities you can put on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then um, backed that up with um, a blood secretor, who I think is just so solid all of the time, always useful. That 16-inch plus one attack bubble, you're always going to want it. Um, very good pairing with Gortide because you can make them immune. You can make their three up safe unmodifiable, and then they're just very annoying. They, they're never going anywhere. Um, and then the sort of I'll, I'll, there's one big decision I made with this army, but I'll talk through the rest. So um, two units of ten blood reavers, also known as flying eighty point blood tithe points, um, <laughs> and, and occasional they occasionally fight. Um, there's a few combos I think hidden away for corn that can use them. And then a unit of ten blood warriors um, with dual axes. Blood warriors have been moved to min ten, which changes their use. And actually, I'm kind of pleased because it means the first unit I ever built this unit of 10 with the banner and the special weapon and the dual axes is I think now the best way to run them. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it's killed is the old five dudes, a squad of just five blood warriors with axes and the bucklers that yeah. would just stand on an objective and be annoying. I kind of miss them. And something I'm going to have to do is take the two units of them. I've got make <laughs> them a banner and make them a special weapon and try and turn them into an actual usable squad. Um, and then a unit of skull reapers, which I really like. Um, I think they get, became really good heavy infantry chosen equivalent, very, you know, potentially quite very good against hordes. Um, and then, um, a unit of 
um, Mighty Skull Crushers, the juggernaut riding mortal infantry, who's, I think, as soon as I started to see the way things were changing in this edition, I realized how good they potentially are now because they benefit so much from little things. They benefit from the fact that, well, previously, when War Scroll Battalions were a thing in match play, they, they lost out because they weren't in any of the good ones. Hmm. So you would almost never take them. Then they, uh, the other things they benefited from are they are five wound models. So now they count as two models and objectives. They have a native three up save and Gorn has a lot of ways of getting access to plus one save. So that yeah. two up is very, very powerful. Um, they do mortal wounds on the charge, which is relevant in the world of unleash hell. So there's a lot of reasons to take them now. And I wanted to give them a run out. Um, and then the other decision I made was, um, to take three slaughter priests for the remaining slots. Um, and I, and then not only that, but to take a prayer enhancement. So each of those slaughter priests knew two prayers, one each from the corn book and one each from the generic list, including multiple priests taking curse, which is a new universal prayer that is only nine inch range, but you put it on mm. an enemy unit and then it basically any a roll of hit six to hit that unit does a mortal wounded addition. And this is really massive for corn because with the exception of blood letters and skull reapers, obviously skull reapers and army blood letters weren't, Corn is a weird one where they have buckets of attacks, loads of access to rerolls, and almost no exploding effects or ways to get them. And obviously, the thing that makes buckets of attacks and rerolls powerful is fishing for sixes that trigger things. Yes, basically. And so I, I, that combo actually, um, you know, not to skip, skip too far ahead, didn't do a ton in this game, but I still no. think it's like one of those little pocket things that I'm going to keep trying because I think, like, when you've got a unit of ten blood reavers that cost eighty points, throwing out. 30 odd attacks re-rolling ones where sixes do a mortal wound that's suddenly really scary um and yeah i think there's definitely something there yeah definitely i, I think um what's good about corn for this as well is that most priests in the game do not want to be within nine inches of an enemy yeah. unit especially one that you're trying to alpha strike um so, but the ability for the corn priest just to be that bit tougher, and the fact that you can take three of them and it not be a hindrance to your army, um, yeah. means that you can actually afford to start doing. And the other thing I did was the other thing I think was really nice. I, man, I could talk about this game from a disability point of view because I think so many things come into to it. But like when you're picking your grand strategy, um, I think grand strategy interacts with this building in a really interesting way. And in this case, it definitely helped me make the choice to add a third priest rather than something else like another small hero or something like that. Hmm. Because one of the um, one of the grand strategies, I can't remember exactly what it's called. Um, keep is, all your priests alive. Is keep all your priests alive. And I win my grand strategy if, if all my priests are alive at the end of the game. And I know for a fact with this list, you don't want to target the priests. Like, obviously, you know, and, and so, and I think I could talk about this tons, but I really like that, that design where... Um, if I force a scenario where my opponent has to go hunting the priests in order to <laughs> win the game, I've probably already won. and Or I've already lost so hard it wouldn't matter. Yeah, I think that's the situation where they get it, right? Is the, oh, I've been tabled where you've lost that already, right? Yeah. yeah. Whereas in most games, and hopefully in even the match games, it would be a very hard thing to do that you wouldn't yeah. want to prioritize over killing units, over killing the bloodthirster, particularly over killing a mega gargant that's rampaging around. There's no scenario where a mega gargant's in your lines where you'll direct firepower at a six wound priest. <laughs> no. You know, and also no. that six wounds, again, the fact that they can survive, like it's, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed kind of putting this together. And I think it's one of, even though we put these together for aesthetic reasons to mm. have the big boys fight, 
this is a list I can actually see myself running again because I really, really liked it. Yeah, I think um, a lot of the brand strategies kind of reward you building towards a particular skew. You can take ones mm. that are about interacting with your opponent, so kill something. But um, especially in, for example, a tournament situation where you don't know what you're playing game to game, I think those are really risky to take. Yeah. Because um, you have you have no idea what's coming. If you have killed their general and uh, their general is something that's absurdly difficult to kill, then you're putting yourself at a distinct disadvantage. So I, they generally, I think, re- you're rewarded for picking the ones about keeping your own units alive and skewing towards that. And I think what's interesting about your priest one is that your ability to take that skew doesn't cost you that much. No. Like, for example, if you're taking Keep All Your Monsters Alive, unless you're playing Sons of Behemoth or some other pure monster army, um, you're going to have a limited number of monsters because it's hard to take that many in a list unless you're getting them as battle line or, you know, some other way. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, um, we should, um, I think, I think cause obviously this was a much more substantial game and also we, um, it is hot and my brain is, is yes. very, very foggy. Probably not going to be able to exactly blow by blow, but I thought it was really, really interesting how this one played out. So, mm. um, the one interesting consequence is without battalions behaving the way they used to and me going for double warlord and hunters of the whole outland meant that I had a million drops and therefore you got to choose, mm. um, who went first on the first turn? It's not a ton to say about deployment, I think, other than we kind of um, both filled lined out. Deployment out. zones, yeah. Yeah, we filled our deployment zones with dudes, shall we say. Um, but also the Mega Gargans were sort of hidden from each other by a tower mm. in the middle of the board, basically. Yes. And neither, I think neither of our armies um, are absurdly fast. Mine's fairly no. quick. Yours has the ability to be relatively quick in places, but not generally. I could have, if I'd wanted to, I could have deployed to fling a unit of Blood Warriors at you on mm. the first turn, which would have been wholly pointless. Yes. Wholly pointless. Yes. So I, I knew that you knew I wasn't a turn one threat. I knew you weren't a turn one threat. And that, that put us in the relatively civilized position of it being a fairly open call, I think. But obviously it was your call to me. Yeah. We also, neither of us, importantly, had any shooting, which is usually, I think, what decides this thing. So I, uh, I, I mean, Elinda can honk her, 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 A lot of her shooting is in the hero phase. Um, so True. it's actually, she sort of operates a turn behind in her shooting uh, in terms of your movement. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, these kind of decisions are the ones I hate the most because I, I kind of... F- in, either, it's, in a way, it sort of almost doesn't matter. Um, and I tend to default to giving my opponent first turn in these situations and then, hey, maybe I get a double. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, I'm increasingly of the opinion that's a mistake. And maybe I should be defaulting to taking the first turn. Um, just to get points on the board, to get board position. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I let you have it. You did some shuffling and tapped some objectives and not much else. Yeah, pretty much. The, the only thing that I think would be notable is um, battle tactic choice. There's a sure. battle tactic called Ferocious Advance, which requires you to run with three units and have them finish the run move within three inches of each other, which is, I think, there basically, if you get given 
the first turn in a scenario where you can't realistically fight. Mm, it's a gimme. It's a gimme. And I think it's kind of there to be a gimme in that scenario because you are exposing yourself to a double. So yeah, all I did that turn was was throw up buffs because my sort of priest can do a lot of different buffs. Um, sort of overload um, one flank with the Bloodthirster screened by the Juggernauts um, with some um, uh, Blood Reavers also <laughs> there. Keep my priests in the center, hold back the Blood Warriors because I didn't want them getting charged. Um, and then throw out a sort of sacrificial group of um, Blood Reavers onto the far flank, almost certainly to die, but <laughs> kind of hoping to kind of obviously just score some points and, and act as a bit of a speed bump. Um, and that was it, entirely it for that turn um, yeah. for me. So I then in my go push my Mega Gargan up, and I think I took the battle tactic to use a monster to take an objective. Yeah, uh, which he did by beating up some blood reavers. He also um, he also killed a skull reaper by throwing a rock at them. Yes, he did. That's fun. Uh, and I also played it pretty cagey. Um, some of my army has decent speed. You know, it all kind of moves eight inches, which is nice, but it's not quite there. The hex rates are decently fast, but you want them to protect Alinda, who is slower. Um, so I could push up a bit, and I sort of felt like I needed to, just so I wasn't fighting in my own deployment zone the whole game. Um, that sort of turned into what it was anyway in later turns. Um, I kind of fished for some 10-inch charges, but when I didn't get them, I didn't make the charge just because I would have been sending uh, ghosts in to die against a Mega Gargan. Yeah. Uh, there's an argument that maybe they could have roadblocked him off for a turn, but that would have been relying on him not killing the unit. I think um, it, that's an interesting one because I think based on Nighthaunt Rend immunity, because you, you were right earlier when you said that the War Stomper's damage output is the weakest to the Mega Gargants. Hmm. A lot of its threats come from the fact that all of its attacks are Rend 2 or Rend 3, which yeah. is relatively low damage. So he'll get damage through, but you know, not tons of it. And that's massive against Nighthawk because they, you know, obviously the four up save giveth and the four up save taketh away. It does but it takes it takes away quite a lot from the war stomper, I think. Because, you know, obviously he's throwing out ten rend three damage to attacks, and that is suddenly becomes very pillow fisted against ghosts. It can do. Yeah, it, it, he's got enough attacks where I think it's a huge gamble on my part. And mm-hmm. the one unit that... So I had two units that could have charged him. One just flat failed the charge. Uh, the other didn't roll the 10, but m- made the charge. And I elected not to move in with them just because that unit um, wasn't in Hunters of the Heartland. And right. it was also a unit that I wanted to protect Lady Alinda with. Um, so I was kind of only going to YOLO them out if I thought I'd get two rounds of combat with them. Um, out of the uh, Wave of Terror Allegiance ability to fight twice if you roll a 10 plus to charge. Yeah. Uh, and because I didn't get that, I thought the the chances, the most likely outcome of that situation is that they do two or three wounds and then die. Uh, and that doesn't actually hold you up at all. No. I think it's interesting because obviously hindsight is is big. What's interesting mm. here is I think we both thought that it was inevitable that because you had, as we say, wiped a unit of Blood Reavers off one of my objectives or you were about to at this point. And so what that meant is your Mega Gargant was currently marching down my weakest flank, basically, mm. rather than down the middle where my Mega Gargant was. And my assumption at that this moment was if I got the next turn, I would have to use it to move back with my Mega Gargan and just stop your Mega Gargan from rolling into my deployment zone. 
basically. Yes. Um, and I think you were thinking the same thing. And then what was interesting is um, um, the turn went back to me um, yeah. into the following turn. And I realized at that moment that I actually was, comp- that I was in a very open position to completely press the advantage down the middle straight into your deployment zone. I think the other key thing there is that um, as cool as a Gargant v. Gargant fight is, uh, it's a fight that the gatebreakers probably expected to win quite handily. Yeah. Uh, it's got more end, it's got more damage, it's got more attacks. Um, so, especially in a 1v1, it's got more attacks. So in that situation, uh, you, there really is no reason other than it would look cool <laughs> to charge the war stomper the, into it. The, the reason would be, and this is, I think, so, uh, we can talk about how things panned out. I mm. don't didn't believe I had anything else that could fight the gatebreak, even and lose. Like you're right, I think he loses that fight. I don't think anything mm. else in my list could fight the gatebreaker and survive. Um, I think they'd all get flattened, and and there are things that could slow it down, but everything would die basically yeah. eventually, and that includes the bloodthirster. The bloodthirster would just die in one round. Um, you know, and and so um, my thought at that time was I'd have to throw the the war stomper into him just to prevent, just to allow the game to play out between everybody else. Right? It would effectively be my four. You waste your five hundred and twenty five point model killing my four hundred and seventy point model, and I mm. just about get win the trade, basically, yeah. as I hopefully then smash stuff up elsewhere. But in this scenario, what I realized was, um. I could move my blood warriors onto the edge of my home objective. So, you know, I hope, you know, almost certainly inevitably it, as it seemed getting smashed to pieces by a gatebreaker, but you wouldn't get onto my home objective for at least another turn. Mm. Um, and then charge with everything right into the hex wraiths and Alinda, pick the battle tactic to kill a battle line unit, target the hex wraiths and smash into them, you know, smash the um, skull reapers into the, um, uh, not Blade Ghosts, uh, Grimgar Streepers, and yeah. just like, you know, create this complete surround in your uh, deployment zone, which is um, what I did. Got some some big charges off and some really good shooting. And that this that turn for me, um, you know, including getting, uh, you know, um, tagging three units with the D6 Mortal Wounds on the charge yeah. from the War Stomper, who kind of smashed into Alinda, the Hex Wraiths, um, and the Grimgast Reapers, um, got the Skull Reapers into the Grimgasts, got the Bloodthirster into um, Alinda. Like it mm-hmm. was, there was really like a, a kind of um, the the the, the uh, Juggernauts failed their charge, but I didn't really care at that point. Other than that, it was basically that was probably a good a perfect, thing in hindsight. Yeah, it probably yeah. was. Yeah, um, it, it basically felt like a perfect turn. Yeah, like it was like just full on. Like okay, yeah, I've I've got you completely. Um, I think. Surrounded. Um, there's sort of two moments that uh, defined how the game progressed, and I think that was one of them. You basically deleting my entire battle line. Like, I lost, I managed to regrow one unit of hex wraiths down from not very much back to full with the, the Black Coach and Alinda over the rest of the game, but I lost one unit of hex wraiths. I lost the Grim Ghasts. Um, I lost a lot of wounds on Alinda so that I basically had to keep her out of the fight for the rest of the game. Uh, yeah. Whilst she slowly healed up with heroic actions. Um, that. And that just put me on such a back foot. Like that, that part of the board then just became me using the enormous footprint of the black coach, uh, which I think I forgot I had in my army, but I had the black coach. <laughs> and I almost got it before the game as well. I had to run upstairs to, uh, to, to grab it out of the cupboard. 
um, using the enormous footprint of the black coach to sort of block you out of uh, the capturing the objective. Uh, that was sort of what that turned into. And I think the other big moment in the game came in my next turn. Yeah, it did. There's there one thing I wanted to... There's a few things I wanted to call out before that. One is that mm. I did manage to... I did a ton of damage, and you're right, kind of completely devastated the battle line, but only one unit died. It was one unit of hex rates. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the 20 Grimcars turned into four. Right. But um, for me, but obviously with, with there's two reasons that's significant. One is, um, you know, bogging the units down for a few more turns, no blood tithe points, and also you, you've got to wholly kill ghosts or you're going to have more ghosts on your hands. It's kind of the way the army works, right? Yeah. And so... They, they don't yeah. regrow as much as you think, um, but yes, no. they can. They, they they do possess that ability. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's more of a... So, it, but, um, so I sort of regretted splitting my fire a little bit, but obviously it felt like a really big swing. And I imagine I could tell just from how games tend to feel at a certain mm. point that that was the moment like, is this one of those over in the first half of round two yeah, games? It certainly felt like that. It did feel like it, and actually, but it didn't prove to be, which I think is really, really interesting. No, I think the nail really uh, was the next turn. It it looked closer than it uh, was for a little while, I think. Um, so then we came to my turn two. Um, so I, my plan at this point, obviously, was I had used my Gatebreaker, who was now a million miles away, uh, at a huge, enormous terrain piece away from your uh, War Stumper. And yeah, utterly pointless to try and make them fight. Uh, so he went to beat up the Blood Warriors that you were baiting me with. Um, they obviously were baiting, but at the same time, you know, if he kills them, he can then in the next turn walk onto your objective. And that's an enormous swing because that's so many. It's, it's so you, many. You'd, you'd have to kill a lot to capture it because bear in mind in, in this army, he still only counts as one, to quote Gimli. But, oh, he counts, sorry, he counts as five. Yeah, he counts uh, as five. Yeah. But, um, you know, so there, there were a few heroes spotting around. I had Blood Reavers I could move in. But yes, I was very worried that you would do that. Yeah. So that that was the plan. And the rest of it was just basically fighting a holding action elsewhere. Just hold you whilst I yeah. do that. That was the plan. Uh, the Gatebreaker so it then charges the Blood Warriors and does one wound. The, <laughs> yeah. To put uh, and the Blood Warriors it, then... Yeah do quite a lot back to him. They do about 10 damage to him. Yeah, they went nuts. They they lost half a guy. I think they lost mm. two guys to shooting because of his flat four damage shooting yes. attack. And then yeah. they lost half a guy to his... It's extraordinary that he put everything into them and did one wound. We should lean on that. Like they, yes, they he's, held, got, but uh, like, he's got one one attack profile with... I think he's got like the normal Mega Gug and stuff of like the quite swingy ones where it's like four attacks and one attack. But he does have a 10 attack flail with three damage. And you should kill three. more than half Blood Warrior, basically. Yes, you should. Oh, but he there. absolutely, <laughs> absolutely spanned it in a really spectacular way. It's also, um, the, the words all out defense has never meant more than that. <laughs> like, um, I think I think with the flail, you didn't even get to roll saves. I failed to even wound with really one. hard, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's uh, just the way it works sometimes, right? Uh, but what that really did was just set me back that one turn, because uh, he was probably going to kill them the next turn, and he did. Um, but it just sets that... That, that potential, yeah. like you said, he needed to kill them that turn, and then to have the next turn to threaten to take that objective, and it sets him back that turn. Whilst you're having much more pressure applied to my army, which is in tatters I, on the I, other I side sort of, of disagree board. with that simply because of how much pressure I lost on the other flank. Because the one thing about that turn that went really well for you mm. is Alinda did twelve mortal wounds to Bloodthirster yes. in one hero phase. So yes. <laughs> she like, did do that, <laughs> and so which would have killed it outright if I hadn't used the heroic ability to recover two wounds at the start mm. of the phase because um, it had taken some damage. 
And then obviously you brought your Blade Geist Revenants in from the flank and made the the big boy 11-inch charge into the Juggernauts. Um, that was the other kind of... Oh, and they then killed the Bloodthirster did, in the yeah. charge phase. The last two wounds or whatever. They, they yeah, uh, where yeah. I obviously couldn't use all that defense or anything like that, mm-hmm. which I've been hoping to use to keep them alive. The funny thing about that is that ended up then meaning I had that point free to use on the, the Blood Warriors. But my, my perspective on that turn, um, obviously I think the the absolutely extraordinary survival of those blood warriors was, was the really big thing. I think you're right about that. But my, my experience of it, which was keeping me nervous was I lost so much momentum on the other side of the board, mm-hmm. because even though um, it turns out juggernauts are really tanky, they, they tanked a lot. Part of that yes. is weak rolling. Part of that is just, you know, uh, reinforceable, you know, reliably getting them to a two up save from various different sources. I think so. They were fighting the blade geists, and they took I think three rounds of attacks from the full unit of blade geists, and they lost like three wounds in that time. And they lost three wounds over that entire thing. I, uh, the blade geists were one, so you were making the three up saves. I think you just made an incredible amount of three up saves, and I, I there was a turn where I made an incredible amount of four up saves. So I mean, it's fair enough, really. Yeah, um, but the but um, eventually yeah, I, they massacred the the blade geists. The blade geists just died to to wait of attacks so easily because it's. 10 wounds in that unit. Yeah. Um, but my experience of this, at least as it was being played, was of having, with the death of the Bloodthirster, the Skull Reapers spent the rest of the game fighting a black coach, not doing a lot to it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're chipping it away, but dying themselves and, yeah. and, and not getting the black coach shields itself. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, it felt a bit, a bit cagey because, you know, um, obviously, and then Alinda had retreated to go kind of heal up and things. Yeah. So, um, and then I ended up, and one thing I realized at that moment was going into, um, did I win the roll off again? I did, didn't I? I won, I won yes. both. So I, and then going into round three, um, I won the, no, hang on. No, I didn't. Cause I removed your, Oh no. Yes. I went first and you removed a objective. Yes. And so because you'd gotten the double going into that, I realized that one of the best things I could do was not, um, was not save my points for summoning, which I thought was not going to be a big difference maker in that game. Yeah. But dump all the four of the blood tithe that I'd earned so far on allowing my blood warriors to fight in your hero phase. Um, so, and what that ended up doing is pouring another six wounds into the mega gargant because um, blood warriors fight when they die. And yeah. so hypothetically that would allow them to fight two times that turn. Three times. And, and they ended up, unless I picked, and I, it means, unless you picked it meant, the gargant. I had yeah. to pick the mega gargant to go first to stop that happening. Yeah. Yes. Um, and they, you know, so they had by this point done something like 17 wounds to a Mega Gaga and taken yeah. one in return. Um, and uh, yeah, and needless to say, by the time they did die, and obviously they did get flattened when they got flattened, um, their uh, attacks on death, um, I think they I think they did 27 wounds to it by the time they yeah. got killed, which is just extraordinary overperformance from 10 Blood Warriors. They did good. But yeah, what was your kind of thinking going into that turn, having had your momentum arrested in the way that you did? Uh, I mean, I I think I knew the writing was on the wall at that point. I tried to play it out. There was a play that I had um, with the Mega Gargan and the Glaverith Stalkers making a hero 11-inch uh, uh, charge at one point um, onto that point to try and outnumber you. Yes. Um, but I think because I was that one turn behind being able to walk onto the objective with the Mega Gargan it just made it impossible. You could, it gave you that extra turn breathing room to respond by bringing more bodies on yes. uh, in a way that I wouldn't then be able to contest it. Uh, and it, me then being able to cap it, I'd be looking at round five at best. 
Uh, yeah. Uh, at that point, you had killed the Hex Wraiths. You'd killed the Blade Geists. Um, you'd killed everything on the other side of the board, bar the Black Coach and Alinda. And Alinda was on about two wounds after the Mega Gargan uh, punched her in the face. It's amazing she survived, to be honest. Yeah, um, that was that was a really interesting turn because that was the, 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 that's actually worth the the turn that the turn after the one I think where the. The mega, your mega government was so pillar fisted. Hmm. Mine just completely whiffed trying to kill Alinda. So just two he, sad. Go- I mean, he yeah, did throw I, a ghostly horse at the other mega government, though. That so, was fun. Um, that was fun. That was fun. Um, and then, then I think so. We got to the end of that round three, and then we called it there because we worked out that physically I just couldn't win um, because I, I I was ahead at that point on VPs, but. Um, we realized I was in a position where you were going to get your grand strategy and I wasn't. And yes, there was also just going to be a turn where you outscored me on the objectives as well. And there's nothing I could do about it. Uh, yes. Back around four, I just couldn't stop you. And that would put you unassailably ahead in points for the, for the rest of the game. And by that point, it was quite late and we were incredibly hot. So we called it. Yeah, indeed. And it was interesting because, yeah, because I actually, like when you were doing the maths, it went so quickly because there's so many things to keep track of now in scoring mm. that like I, I didn't quite believe you at first because I knew I was behind. I knew yes. I hadn't scored my battle tactics. I think I picked the wrong one at one point. Yes. Um, we both we both failed one battle tactic in the game. but uh, I, you know, I got all of mine, actually. Did you? I thought you uh, didn't get one of them. No. I, so we scored the same oh, objectives, that's it. but I was one battle tactic ahead of you. Yes, that's right. Um, but you and, were the grand yeah. strategy ahead of me and had an army. <laughs> yeah, and it was likely that your Mega Gargant was going to die on my next turn. Almost take, certainly. Yeah, almost certainly. Um, and so, because he was very, very wounded from having this shit kicked out of him by 10 Blood Warriors. <laughs> uh, um, and my Mega Gargant was fairly healthy and just fighting a Black Coach and Alinda, both of which were heavily wounded. So it was very likely that I was going to get some fairly easy battle tactics like Slay the Warlord, for example, on my yes, following yeah, turn. Yeah. So it she was, had about it, two wounds left, so that was a guarantee, basically. Yeah, which also at that point would have meant me scoring your home objective, so even you getting onto mine would, would have been a wash. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so I still saw it in the end. But yeah, it was, it was a really interesting one, because uh, to be honest, like as, as even though there's some big sort of crushing, big charges and very disappointing charges, for me, it felt very... It felt very close, even for a game that we called in round three. As it's interesting, I think it's the only because doubles going into round three are often so significant games of AOS, yeah. and it is probably the only time I think I've had a game called for the person who didn't get that. <laughs> so I, I think we'd have called it even earlier if I hadn't. I think that kept, gave me the ability to maybe stay in the game. Yeah, uh, and uh, that it didn't pay off uh, was, I think, just. A testament to how much of my army you'd killed in that initial charge. Uh, yeah. How little I had left on the board. I, I, yeah. I think there's general stuff I could say about Nighthorn. I think they're one of the big losers from iOS 3 in general. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, the absolute inability to take advantage of all out defense is so big. Um, all the, the new command abilities plus one attack, uh, plus one to hit and plus one to save are so much stronger as abilities than the old reroll ones. It's just yeah. so much better. And they also do not take very good advantage of um, Finest Hour uh, because they don't get a benefit of the plus one to save. And all of their heroes are just so mediocre in combat that the plus one to wound doesn't really do much. 
Yeah. It doesn't feel as worthwhile as, I mean, I spent the whole game healing, basically, mm-hmm. is what I did, which feels very strong in Alinda. I really liked Lady Alinda. She did a lot of work. Obviously, those 12 mortal wounds were huge, but she still did a decent chip mortal wounds. Um, and she did quite a lot of damage to your Mega Gargan as well. He didn't take no damage that game. Uh, no, he took about 20, I think, in the end. Yeah. Uh, she did quite good work. I was very quite impressed with her, but I think the rest of the army just struggles so much with damage output um, Yeah, the points that you pay for them. I think, for me, my two takeaways really were that I think Nighthorn have to go on the shelf for a little while. Yeah. Uh, I think they just uh, don't... F- function quite like they're supposed to at the moment. There's just something missing there. They feel that I constantly feel like they're good enough, um, but they're not. They're really not. I need to give up the ghost. <laughs> I and think it's, it's just the, yeah, the not being able to, I think generally speaking abilities that p- prevent you from interacting with a part of the game for better or for worse, mm. or, or, or I don't know if they are ever going to, be as interesting as, as other sorts of things. And I think you're absolutely right that so much of this new edition is about knowing where and when to apply the buffs you have at your fingertips that everyone mm. has at their fingertips. That's yes. a big change, right? Through these monster actions, through these, um, you know, hero actions, like you, and uh, through the various command abilities, you pick and choose, you know, and the skill of the game is going to come down to, do you understand what you can do and what your components do in the optimal times to use yeah. those abilities? And, and and I really like that because it feels like it's a layer above. AOS has always been about that when it comes to things like yeah. order to fight in and how to move. And they just don't interact with it. And that's a huge no. shame. It's essentially not at all. Uh, and it's it's really unfortunate. And the, all the, the, other, the other impact of all that defense is, is that they're a faction that relies very, very heavily on rend one, damage one attacks. Yeah. And it just you can be blunted so easily um, that it it makes it a real slog because you're overpaying for these bodies in the in the first place. Um, yes. So yeah, I think they're going on the shelf, and I think my other takeaway is that for the moment, I probably don't want to play much with thirty-two mil one-inch reach models. Yeah. Fiddly. Uh, they the. You commented at one point after the Blade Guys charge that I'd done an AOS 2 pile-in, which was very legitimate. I piled (laughs) utterly out of coherency. And what we found was that I could pile in such a way as to be in coherency and all fight. Um, But it it took a good couple of minutes and it looked awful on the board. Just like we were playing an aesthetic game, as I said, you know, neither of us were. This wasn't tournament practice. This wasn't seeing what's the hottest possible strat in Age of Sigmar. It was taking two cool models we wanted to play with, two cool armies yeah. we wanted to play with, and, and seeing how the game plays. And I just think, I didn't enjoy how they looked on the board. I didn't enjoy using them. Um, and they weren't very good. Uh, it just puts me off that sort of model entirely. Um, you know, I'm looking at my Nomato Thralls and I'm thinking they exist probably just to be the cheapest battle line that army has. And I don't want to play with them any more than that. Yeah, I think I think thirty twos above ten is going to be real rough. Yeah, like yeah. I think at ten you can just about do it. You can um, you can do it. You have to do a kind of. There's lots of pictures of bases on the internet, aren't there? And how you can do certain things, but in contact with the real world, it doesn't really always work like that because uh, yeah. units don't fight in perfect lines, do they? No. So what it ends up looking like is this sort of weird snake thing going on to try and get them all in. Um, and I don't. I just didn't. I don't enjoy doing that. Um, no, that's I like fair. 
I like the piling in aspect of the game, and you make a good point uh, about piling in being much better now in general um, because you don't have to pile into the nearest model. So that's much a much cleaner experience, but uh, yeah, yeah. You said something that made sense, which is I think the new the combination of new coherency, which I imagine we'll talk about more, and and um, um, and different piling and just the general changes where units are constructed, they all feel like they make sense by the way that the game is played, sort of um, most wholesomely. But they yeah, do directly push you into some very strange, fiddly situations. And I there's think there's like a studio way of playing, the way you would imagine that uh, Jervis plays, and then there's how you actually play in the real world, which is yeah. um, there maybe sometimes are at odds, not always, um, but sometimes they are. And I think I think what it will lead to in a lot of games, maybe not the top end of competitive play, but in a lot of games, is a strange situation where we just sort of agree that it would be possible to pilot all these models to get yeah. into combat but we're going to leave them in their kind of approximate formation because we can't be bothered, yes. which is like fine. Like, I think a lot of fun yeah, games will be fine. played, yeah. but it's, it's, it's inelegant from the rules point of view at the moment. I think it's fixable, but it's, it's just, yes. I think, but it's also very specific to 32 mil models with one inch range. Yes. <laughs> like that's, yeah, 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 that, yeah. that is the unit that is affected by this. Yes. There just are, some, lot of there are some other units as well, but yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of the new kind of models they're making. It always it's always such a huge relief to fight with anything with a two inch range because you just stop thinking about it. Um, yeah, broadly speaking. Um, uh, but it, it was a very fun game. I enjoyed I enjoyed playing it a lot, even if I was uh, the temperature of the sun afterwards. Exactly, um, and I yeah I really enjoyed it as well. And it's interesting for me because I don't think I don't think Korn, to talk to what this says to me about corn. Corn for me has always been it was my second Age of Sigmar army. Um, hmm. It's increasingly the one I play the most, um, at least in real life. Um, I think. Um, and one of the reasons I always enjoyed playing it is because it's always been the army, the wholesome army I have, right? Yes. As somebody yeah, yeah. started with Zinch, and I love, obviously, I've, you know, I've only ever done armies because I like the theme and the models, but the thing, my, my endless disappointment with Zinch is how fiddly they will, they seem to remain. Um, like, I love the models and I love the theme, and there are lists there I'm excited to run. Mm. I don't want to run horrors until they no, get FAQ'd. Like, rules nightmare horrors are. Yeah, and they're just, I mean, I think I am someone who is sensitive to creating negative play experiences. I, mm-hmm. I don't mind weathering them, but I really hate feeling like I'm having to play slowly to resolve something or to, yeah, or that I'm kind of gotcha-ing in any way. And so it seems so full of that that um, it really puts me off them. Corners always felt relatively wholesome to me. And this, you know, I, I think uh, I don't want to judge any faction in the game by the quantity of wailing and gnashing of teeth online about them because <laughs> I think it's impossible. I think everyone gets it almost equally sometimes. Mm. But corn definitely, you know, there's a lot of upset corn players because I think uh, a lot of the old competitive power of corn came from its battalions, yep. which are gone in a competitive sense, uh, particularly uh, gore pilgrims and tyrants of blood. Um, um, and so big combos about getting big groups of, you know, bloodthirsters to, to attack. Mm-hmm. I think they have more going for them. I, I've mentioned something with the combination between curse and buckets of rerollable attacks yeah. already. Um, but I think there are a bunch, I think they are a happy occupants of the fat they, middle. Yeah, I was going to say, fat they, middle. they feel very fat middle. I think um, there's a big, big, big old fat middle in AOS 3. Yeah. And I think maybe some of the wailing and gnashing of teeth will come from uh, at the moment, I mean, it's early on that they're, what's at the absolute top of the competitive scale is quite a lot better than the fat middle. Um, yes. You know, your, your seraphons and I think, as we'll talk about later probably, your sons of Bohemets. Um, yeah. And your 
potentially Lumineth, they feel that, you know, they're a tier above, but they feel really, that tier feels like a long old gulf. And I think maybe yeah. uh, that's where you see the complaints coming from in the in the fat middle, where really, as you say, the fat middle is kind of where you want to be. The fat middle is the it's most the fun place middle. to be. Yeah. Um, you have more freedom in list building. Because, I mean, the thing is as well, um, the game has always had this gulf. And actually, I would always gauge the health of the game more on the size of the fat middle than the presence of really, really pushed lists at the top because they have always existed. And I think that fat middle is about as fat as it's been for a long time, which is also my experience of lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. Topical. But more to the point, like, it's, it's, um, you know, I think – they feel like the, the best thing about being playing an army in the fat middle, I think, is it feels like an army that has the potential to cause an upset, to win something they shouldn't, yeah. or to kind of like, um, kind of uh, achieve something surprising. And that's really what I kind of look for in these armies. Um, I feel like Nighthorn are not in the fat middle, but they deceptively look like they are. Yes, I think that's always the key with Nighthorn. I think they've always been there. I think they're scrapping around for worst army in the game tier. Uh, Beasts of mm. Chaos players will probably yell at me for saying that, but they would do um, that anyway. They'd do that anyway. <laughs> but I, I think they're they're certainly in contention for it. Uh, I say this is a nighthorn lover. I've got so many other bastards. You do, um, but yeah, like we said, they just they are utterly not designed to function in this edition, and that's fine. At some point, they will, and then I'll pick them back up again. Yeah, lovely. Oh, we're back in the present, I guess, having Oof. been, yeah, propelled through time itself by disappointment at ghosts. <laughs> so the emotion I'm perpetually feeling. Basically, I figured we could use the the remainder of our time. Um, talk a little bit more broadly, now that we've, we've talked about the games that we've actually played, mm. talk a little bit more broadly about our, our thoughts about this new edition, because, you know, um, well, I think I've had a very positive time so far, but mm-hmm. in an unprecedented turn of events, I just described winning two games in a row. So of course, <laughs> I would feel that way. Of course, I would feel that way. Well, I just How lost two games in a row, like and I had a good time with both of them as well. So I, it's <laughs> not. He says, crushing his black coach between his <laughs> over his knee. alive at the end of the game. It was, yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. What are your broad thoughts at the moment, and and where is this taking you in a kind of interest in the game? point of view mm. um, both in terms of your general interest but also in terms of where you might go next with your you know yeah projects absolutely. and so uh, on my general interest I'm extremely excited um, obviously there's so much to just explore with the new rules and uh, as you said earlier how they even layer on top of older things um in terms of projects going forwards, uh, I've been struggling with this one. Um, and it's part of why I've been hate. Well, I say part of why I've been havering so much on the deep game. This, that's not even true at all. Um, this, that's been going on so long. Um, I've got armies where I feel like I could be confident knowing where to go with them moving forwards. And I've got armies where I, I just have no idea at all. Uh, and I've got one army, Nighthorns, who are, are going in the, the bin of shame until they get a new book. Um, so 
generally in terms of like excitement of like what do I really want to play, I've been building so many Soulblight Gravelord lists. Mm. Uh, there's just, I mean, like in terms of archetypes you can build with them that I think could be both fun to play and, um, you know, not necessarily tippy-top competitive because that's not really where we play uh, necessarily, even if we try. Um, but, you know, that we can try hold hard. their own. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, armies that are fun that can hold their own, I think there are so many in there. Um, you know, from daft stuff like 60 zombie hordes, um, or Andagori monster mashes, um, throwing down blood, blood knights look incredible. Really want to just put some blood knights on the table. Um, but that army is a million miles away from being painted. Um, <laughs> despite, uh, previously saying how much death I own, a lot of it, it turns out was wrapped up in ghosts. Which are no longer in Soul Black Gravelords. So I, my mm. actual Gravelords army is weird and tiny as it currently stands. Um, that being said, even with my weird tiny army, I'd still be super excited to put Nagash on the table. Not because I think he's good, just because it's always exciting to put Nagash on the table. We're just always um, happy to see him. Big yes, happy guy in his lovely yes, hat. You are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I'll bring Marathi. We'll have one of those classic god battles we were talking about much earlier. I'm sure that will be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my poor, beautiful son. Um, (laughs) But yes, as a Grave Lords, I think is super exciting. Um, And I just, my deep kin, I'm struggling with. Uh, I'm struggling Mm. to write lists with them. Uh, Not necessarily like coming up with these are the models I want to play with so much as what do I do with these? Like what uh, battalions am I picking for these? Uh, What grand strategy am I picking for this army? Um, Because I don't think the kind of lists that I'm writing, uh, which are maybe too old school now, that uh, they don't feel like they interact very well with the grand strategies. Like there just aren't any grand strategies I think work well with them. And I've been mm. spending a lot of time in Scroll Builder, just not knowing what to do with them. Um, which is maybe I should see that as more exciting than I currently do. I just need to get table time with them, and that's obviously um, a difficult proposition at the moment. Yeah, indeed. Um, but. Yeah, I think what I want to do moving forwards is like play more with the Deepkin, um, work out how I feel about particular kinds of models in the new edition. So, like the obvious ones we were talking about, uh, how deeply unfun <laughs> playing with Blade Ghost Revenants was. Um, I think they're not the only kinds of models that suffer. Like 32 mil base one-inch reach models, but also Mm. traditional CAV base one-inch reach models, I think. uh, Unless they're in fives. Yeah, unless they're in fives, obviously. Um, My desire to play with them is is somewhat diminished um, as I stare at my 18 painted eels. um, That's the bed I made. (laughs) <laughs> for myself <laughs> I can only blame it's, myself it's there. real wiggly yeah oh, so wiggly um, yeah I just think I need to play games part so 
to do two things really to work out what I need to be exploring in the edition in terms of what a good army looks like. Um, because I don't think it's always obvious. Uh, there's a temptation in grand strategies to just go hold the line for everything. And I don't know that that works for every army. That's the certainly not battle for line one, right? Yes, that's the keep all your battle line alive. But there isn't an obvious alternative for them. So I, that's why I've been struggling with that. But the other thing I just need to get table time down for is playing with these base sizes, playing with reach, playing with the new coherency rules, and just seeing... Uh, you know, do I enjoy this? Uh, and if I don't, yeah. then I'm, that is going to have to be what guides how I build armies. And going forwards, you know, maybe taking, I've been writing lists with Namatai thralls in, um, but they have the same big base low reach problem. So am I taking them just to be cheap battle line or am I taking these models to fiddle about with pylons? Uh, do I want to be bothered with that? You know, that's kind of where I'm at um, with the game. Whilst being on the side, very, very excited about playing with Soulblight, who absolutely feel that they're 100% designed with this edition in mind. Because yeah. uh, all of their sort of... The whole range just, you know, like um, all of their models are either on tiny bases or like Blood Knights are the perfect five model heavy cab unit. Yeah, it doesn't really get any better than Blood Knights for that role now. Um, most of the heavy cavalry is coming in threes, which is such an awkward number because once you reinforce it, you're in bad, bad news bears town for coherency because the new coherency rules kick it. But uh, the the being kick, within kick in plus five, right? Plus yeah, five plus uh, not yeah six plus. So yeah, Blood Knights are at that real, real sweet spot. They look really fun to play with. Um, but none of that's painted. <laughs> so, um, I just need to like get myself into a place where I can start playing with the deep pin, learning what I like and don't like about the edition. And then I can start painting up those soul blight grave lords in the background. Nice. That's, yeah. That's where yeah. I'm at. How about you? You've played um, more than me. I have. I've, so I played, um, you know, a couple of additional games, um, two additional games, I think, both on, on Tabletop Simulator by nature of the, the era we live in, both with my Daughters of Cain. And, like, I'm I'm really happy I made that weird decision to just paint a Daughters of Cain army um, <laughs> so um, real fast. Um, <laughs> because I think I feel very comfortable that I've got uh, a, a good competitive army that I like playing mm -hmm. that is finished and with a bit of adjustment was quickly kind of... Um, made to work in, in the new edition. Yeah. And I really like how it plays. Um, like it, it, you know, um, it's an enjoyable mix of like, it's such a glass cannon, yeah. but it has enough tricks and kind of mind games so that it can play the game in a few different ways. It's a glass cannon, but it's not dependent on alfing you off the board on turn one to win. Although it can, <laughs> it can, you, but actually that's, you love yeah. a pressure army, right? That seems to be your thing. Yeah. You like, uh, stepping on your opponent's throat, turn one and not relenting. I like controlling tempo. I always mm. have like in every competitive thing. I like, I like knowing that the, the game is going to proceed according to the, my kind of rhythm rather than my opponents. Yeah. Um, I like this in X-Wing. I like this in Dota. You know, it's like, 
And I think um, Dr. Zucane achieves that in a entertainingly like fragile way because they mm-hmm. can feel so overwhelming, but they die so fast. And but at the same time, they have enough tricks and and the Shadow Queen and Marathi, the way they work together, mean that you can't be completely wiped out. Yeah. And so I've built a, a one drop Daughters of Cain list um, that uses just the stuff I've painted. And I actually haven't played with it a few times now. Part of me was wondering, you know, you have a thing where you make a decision in a list because it's what you have. but mm-hmm. And because you don't want to paint the thing that might be more optimal. And yep. I think actually having looked at it now, I've realized, like, honestly, I don't think I actually need to change those things. I think I'm in a pretty good place. Um, so that nice. list is, is my, is my, you know, snakes and Marathi list supported by harpies and, and canine shadow stalkers uh-huh. and sisters of slaughter. And, um, in the two games that I played with it now, both times I have felt like, yeah, okay, I, I could take this to a tournament and have a good time. Mm-hmm. And I think given that, you know, um, I have my you know, second vaccine next week and I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that I will be able to go to the London GT in September and, 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 um, and I actually feel happier about where the addition is and where this army is. And I think I ever have about competitive AOS. One of the things that this is a small thing, it's very personal, but like, um, none of my chaos armies are easy to transport because of summoning, <laughs> you know, um, and not, a, and like my daughter's a cane army fits really comfortably in one box. And that is oh, like, that, a sur- that is nice. It's just a surprising, um, and also it tends to play games quite quickly. All of these things reduce, even though I appreciate that. I'm going to create some bad field scenarios for people by teleporting the shadow queen. That's just going to happen. It's just going to happen. You throw a snake at someone, yeah. they get upset. It's one of the oldest, I think humanity's done that for a very long time. People but, know what to expect for the shadow queen at this point though, I think. Yeah. I think in that context anyway, mm. but, um, an army that plays pretty fast, relatively small number of units. Um, I'm really excited about all of that. And the best thing about it is I've already painted it. It's, hey. it's, it's there in a in a it's in a magnetized really useful box right next mm-hmm. to me right now and that means that like i feel like i, th- I was putting myself under such pressure to like solve it solve it solve it solve it solve it that now i don't feel that pressure anymore and that's why i've been able to kind of you know um bounce around between projects in the way that i have i'm building yeah. up corn on the side because that's really kind of the number two army at the moment but also you know i'm not very far off being able to run several good archaeon armies so maybe very i'll just nice. try and get him done so that I can play <laughs> negative play experiences against myself. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, not really, but like, I think, um, um, I think that's something that I genuinely uh, enjoy. Um, and so I, I sort of, I feel really hopeful about it. And I think that's partly because I found myself in a very good position with it, but on, on the side of all of this, you know, I'm really excited to get a little Stormcast army for 2,000 points. I don't really know what I'm going to do with it. I just really love all those models. I love a lot of the models they've announced. I love the silly smiling dragon. I just I needed to say that before this podcast ended. I think yes. I think he's both nice. Of them. They're lovely. Both yeah. of them. Both of your um, fursonas. Both of my fursonas. And you, the, whoever pointed out that they look like, uh, you know, fursonas of like a debate YouTuber. <laughs> that that person was correct and i've decided to smile serenely and just push through that feeling all the way i I like like them until you said that (laughs) they do though but the other Uh, thing they look like is mufasa and scar from the lion king if they were dragons and 
uh, <laughs> uh, these are the new like draconith like sentient dragons that are not mounts they are they are you know in se- se- smart dragons helping sigmar and wearing hats um <laughs> I love absolutely gorgeous models yeah incredible models and i love that uh absolutely love the monkey's paw of oh here's some nice unmounted dragons but they're both named characters. <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder if more Draconis stuff is coming, just off the back of the way it's been described. Um, Fragnos you know, would like it if it did. Yeah, he loves to smash an egg. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just want to, like, kind of have that little project on the side, and God knows when I'll actually play with it. But, mm. you know, that, that, that's been really fun. My other, my other games that I've played... Um, to touch on them briefly i've actually played three but one of them doesn't count because it was against myself um okay because I, uh, I know how to have a good time so in, i think it's we've, all, morning we've last all been there in our low lockdown moments we've been there i have played tabletop simulator aos against myself but i did it partly because <laughs> i wanted to see what the marathi archeon fight was actually like um and it was a nail biter that game that was amazing it came down to really came down to the why they killed each other which i liked <laughs> um and um that 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 sort of uh, made that that experience i appreciate not a real game but the experience of going through the actual play of that made me realize holy shit archeon's very powerful holy shit marathi's very powerful but also um there's a real game there there's a lot of decisions that get made in the in the course of that and a lot of moments of chance and interaction and and i think some of the doom saying about this edition always necessarily ignores the various systems that interact with the buffs and things that people are talking about. Spells get unbound. Yeah. Characters get roared at and can't use command abilities. Like <laughs> these things all happen and they all make big differences. And occasionally, just occasionally people roll twos. Oh, um, sometimes they roll so many twos, Chris. I, I genuinely, um, uh, while playing as myself, rolled more twos than I have ever seen before and no one was there to witness it. And that was a monkey's paw moment. <laughs> I was, I had, uh, Archeon on three health left and the daughters of Cain phase where he needed to die before the combat phase, basically, um, to make sure that because if the shadow queen failed to kill him, she would die to something else. Mm-hmm. So anyway, 20 shots from, um, uh, bloodstalker snake archers at Archeon, um, actually, no, it wasn't 20. It was, tw- it was 14 at that point. Cause there was seven of them within the live. And I rolled 10 twos to hit. Beautiful. It was incredible. It was just a magical moment. The other games were both really, um, interesting. Uh, most recent one was against, um, our friend Dines from discord and his seraphin. He was running sort of experimental Saurus heavy, heavy seraphin. This isn't the, 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 the traditional way that sort uh, that seraphin is played competitively. <laughs> We, we discovered why. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was actually, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a really fun game. It was um, Shadow Queen went off. I mean, she has a reputation. She doesn't always go off in this one. She killed like a Bastilladon, 20 Saurus God, 10 Saurus Knights, and a, a cold one in two turns. Oh, um, God. Um, so, you know, when she do, she do. Best moment in that game for me, at least, was um, Marathi, as in actual Marathi, the mm. wizard casting new arcane bolt on herself, which is now this like charge up spell yes. that ideally wants you to walk up to someone and just like slap them with it after you've charged it up. And she because did. She walked right up to a realm shaper engine 
in my imagination, walked right up to the top of the stairs, which is their like ziggurat, and just slapped a skink off the top of it. <laughs> it's what um, she'd do. It's what she'd do. So the, the new arcane bolt is a hundred percent the reason I want to play with Nagash. I I want to charge up eight arcane bolts, and I want to do eighty three mortal wounds to someone and uh, laugh. Just barely, full belly laugh, and uh, they'd lose the game anyway. <laughs> yeah, very, very funny. Um, it's almost as good as getting charged by, like, I don't know, 300 points worth of blood crushes does the same thing. But anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, the other game um, was against uh, Scops's Sons of Bearmat. Mm. Um, and uh, that was an nail-biter that I lost, and it was a really interesting game. Um, Scops is a very, very good player. Yeah. He played it very, very well. And Sons of Bearmat are very strong in this yeah, edition. And they, they, we both have Sons of Bearmat thoughts, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Well, I sort of, I keep, I mean, I have my War Stomper. We've talked about his outing. And I like, I could just paint a ton of little gargants and then I'd have a Stomper tribe army. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'd do them chaos themed. And then I slap myself and look at the pile of zombie dragons that I live in <laughs> in shame because of my weird choices. Um, but nonetheless, they seem very, very strong, this edition, yeah. for a few I reasons. They're like the opposite world, Nighthaunt, where all of the changes in this edition were bad for Nighthaunt. All of the changes in this edition are incredible for Sons of Behemoth. And they yeah. also got probably uh, the most impactful FAQ out of the uh, AOS 3 FAQs, uh, in that it completely changed their army construction rules. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you can now just run an army of just Mega Gargants, which you previously, you had to take some baby ones. So you can just take four Mega Gargants now, uh, which is a thing. It's a real thing. Yeah. And there's also some, there's just, there's a bunch of interesting, weird interactions. Like, um, honestly, like, I don't think they're in that kind of like, oh, this is busted territory. Not at all. Not with the amount of stuff throwing around the game that's super powerful at the moment. I think the things that are, for me, bad feel is created when choices get locked out mm. rather than when something is simply powerful. I think that's broadly true of every competitive game I've ever liked. It's like when I no longer get to, get to, get to interact. And the only thing about that that really bothers me with Sons of Bama at the moment is it's very clear that their objective capture rules were tuned for a previous edition. And yeah. um, so basically Sons of Bama models count as obviously more than one when they're standing on an objective. In third edition, that's true for any model of above a certain size. Monsters always count as 10, I think. And, um, anything with, no, monsters always count as five. And yes, anything, five. anything, um, with more than five wounds counts as two. And so, um, and I think, I think they definitely need tuning up from that given their very low model count. Mm. But in a, you know, in a, in a regular game, an individual small gargant counts as 10, um, whereas a normal monster would count as five. And a Mega Gargant counts as 20. And a in a Taker Tribe, that goes to 30 and 15. It is, yeah. And that, when coupled with the uh, the changes to army building and coherency in mm-hmm. AOS, they're actually now competing with far fewer models on objectives, partly because average unit size is going smaller, and also mm-hmm. because people can't string out models to kind of really... Um, yeah. they, you so- can obviously set a block on an objective, but you can't like completely screen out um, in the way that you used to be able to. So um, I think they were obviously designed that book was designed to be weirdly for the Gargan, you know, monster, big stompy boy faction to be like a objective control 
faction rather than go out and kill everything. Um, and it needed yeah. to be to be playable in that edition of the rules um, mm-hmm. because that's how Games of Age of Sigmar won and lost on the objectives. Um, but the new, I think, especially with new coherency, is the bases are so big that once you start putting them on the objectives, previously uh, a unit of tiny base models, if you set a Mega Gargant in the middle of the objective, they could still take it if they like formed a perfect friendship circle around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, obviously, that's almost impossible, realistically speaking, because the unit has to be more than 20 models yeah. um, to outcap it anyway. And then once you're more than 20 models, you're in the realm of needing to be two models within an inch of each other. And you just can't form that circle. It's So the ability to, unless it's only got its toe on the objective, the ability to actually physically get enough models there is greatly reduced. Yeah. It basically think, yeah. It, yeah, it basically means that if a Mega Gargan is on an objective, you have to kill the Mega Gargan. There's nothing yeah. else you can do. And that is not easy. Like it's not easy. And and I think for me it's like it's not necessarily super busted, but what it does is it means that that's an army that has one solution and it's out damage it. Hmm. Like there's really nothing else that's going to work. And a uh, big yeah. winner from the generic uh, artifacts as well because there's now a five plus ward artifact. Yes, that was fine huge. if your heroes are capping out at sixteen wounds, but if your heroes can have forty wounds, that becomes <laughs> that becomes a bit of a a bit of a problem. I think that is a huge survivability boost to those models. Well, and there are also beneficiaries from all of the other survivability boosts that heroes and monsters and hero oh, monsters yeah. have gotten. And so, like, we definitely saw this play out because, like, it was interesting. We had two successive rounds where um, the Shadow Queen, who is, you know, one of the scariest, most damaging, rendiest <laughs> creatures in the game, both narrowly failed to kill a Mega Gargan. And in the first case, it wasn't the general as a regular war stomper. Um... Um, and the really key difference maker there was the fact that um, through a heroic action, Mind Razor, which gives her a substantial amount of bonus damage, had been unbound, which just oh, nice. edged, you know, mm. took it out from from being achievable. And then the second round was um, again like did actually manage to kill the the Gatebreaker Mega Gargan that had the Amulet of Destiny with the, for the five up ward save, mm. but it took a lot. And it, I failed the first time um, after, like, you know, just one of those big swingy turns. I think the Shadow Queen did something like 16 damage, and the ward save cancelled five of them. No, eight of them. Cancelled half yeah, of it. Nice. Which, you know, as soon as it kind of it <laughs> yeah. goes a bit above, and then suddenly it's like, wow, that's a huge amount of mitigation that can happen. And yeah, so. It's the fives over the. Because natively they have access to a six plus ward gargoyle. Yeah. But it's pushing it to that five just lets those swings happen so much more often. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and like I say, this is none of this is to say that like I think this isn't, um, you know, um, you know, it's not busted or anything. But it feels like an army that, despite not having one of those characters, fits in the same thing. Of mm. They're in that power level, that S rank, where you probably can't play them casually because if you don't know how to deal with them, I think they yeah. will just win I, by standing on an objective. They will turn into the the gatekeeper which is uh unfortunate nice. given that they have a gate breaker but they will i think they're going to turn into the gatekeeper the the meta game unless something wildly significant changes because 
it feels so difficult for armies that aren't skewing to be able to kill them, to yeah. to deal with them fast enough to actually win the game. Yes, agreed. Like they, um, yeah, it's it felt like it feels like a good um, litmus test in a way, and that's that's why I think I think the solution honestly is they should probably have the same objective capture rules as everybody else now, except maybe Mega Goggins should count as ten. Yeah. And I think that yeah. would put it back in territory where, like, you can you can kind of, you know, they have to kill you as well. It's not just one-sided. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sort of the problem, right, is they, they can fully whiff their attacks and, and still happily. Or maybe if, um, you know, because one thing with a, a unit is as you kill the unit, its ability to hold an objective decreases. That's not true of a Mega Gargan. It's as good at holding objective at 35 wounds as it is at one wound. Yes. So maybe if that wound could be tied, to, uh, that rule of holding objectives could be tied to their degrade track, that might make it feel like something you can actually interact with. And like, okay, I can chip these guys down to a point where maybe I don't have to kill it. Maybe I can just it enough that I can then start taking back these objectives. Yeah. Yeah, that would work. And again, it's just about interactivity. But actually, mm. one of the nice things about the experience I've had so far is like that doesn't feel like even even in its current state, it wasn't a it was a very fun game and it's still mm-hmm. like a really interesting army to come up against. Um it's just they seem like, you know, to we've talked about Nighthorn, like you say, they they are the big winners because I don't yeah. think that that book didn't set the world on fire. And aside from that, obviously the big FAQ to army building, but the core kind of theme of the army hasn't changed very much. It just feels like the entire edition warped around it to such a point now where it's like, as you say, the gatekeeper to that top tier, right? If you can't damage them fast enough, um, then you have to be ready to lose to them almost by default. Mm. I'm struggling to think of armies that can put out that kind of, because you need some seriously hefty, uh, damage to really shift these models. Have uh, you considered nine storm fiends? <laughs> I think about nine storm fiends almost every day, Chris. Uh, yes, they <laughs> they do do it. It turns out, but they uh, they're a, they're a whole problem unto themselves that uh, Games Workshop un- unwittingly re unleashed back onto the world after FAQing saying no, you can't do this. They brought it back, brought it back with a vengeance. Uh, yeah, so the reinforcement rules. I'm not even sure if Archeon would actually do much against Sons of Bearmat, really. Because he can't Slayer of Kings them. No. Nothing else in the army can hurt them. No. Um, maybe that, maybe Sixth Circle Varangard could, but they would die in the doing of it. Um, and I think Archeon's damage output isn't spectacular, frankly. Um, no, it's it's good. It's good, but it's yeah. like it's 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 not the Shadow Queen can do it. Um because she has a lot of rendy damage. Scarbrand can do it. Scarbrand could do it. There you um, go. Scarbrand you get on. Yeah, well, like I have got a little cheeky little Scarbrand list brewing. Maybe I need <laughs> to try it against on, on tabletop simulator against some mega gurkins. Scops if you're interested. Because <laughs> he could do it, and that would be very funny. He might just get completely flattened, which is yes. the other thing. But like it is, it is Scarbrand's. I'm looking at him right now. I love him. He's so silly. His his, de- his destiny to fling himself at the biggest thing and mm. then lose. Basically, it's interesting. If um, 
with models like that, Scarbrand feels like he's a solution, but they have deceptively good shooting, so he might just die on the way in. Yes. Yeah, that's the thing, because he is quite mm. slow, because he can't fly. Yeah. Um, I mean, the real the real solution is uh, Gotrick, who, um, with his <laughs> three plus wards and ability to turn all damage into damage one, uh, takes almost no damage from a mega gargan in a fight and flattens them in return. Uh, it's a it's a deeply unfair contest, um, <laughs> <laughs> almost comically. But I guess thematically, you know, Gotrick is a is a slayer, giant slayer. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's so, a whatever slayer, really. Yeah, he. Uh, but he does. He does chop them up pretty nicely. He chops almost everything up pretty nicely. It's the only thirty-two mil base model you'll accept. Oh, <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, uh, got trick. Got trick fighting Scarbrand is very sad for Scarbrand. Yes. Uh, is it? I mean, thirty-two yeah. mortal wounds is thirty-two more. Or does he turn it into one? He turns it into one because oh, no. it's not. It's not. It's not. Right, he's like he, individual he instances like of mortal wounds. Yeah, Scarbrand's, yeah. Scarbrand's best day ever is if because I think I think in most reasonable circumstances the most attacks you can ever get him is three is yeah. plus two basically because he's a demon and so it is hypothetically possible for Scarbrand to do forty eight mortal wounds with one of his attacks, um, which I think is up there with like the the wildest potential variants in the game basically. Yeah. Um, but even at the lower end in that circumstance, if he's suitably damaged, it's uh, um, he's still doing like 24. Um, but Gotrek treats every instance of damage as one, and those are in instances of 16 or 8, depending on what Scarbrand rolls. Mm. So so they would just count as one. Um, Gotrek would take a maximum of three mortal wounds from him. Um, but probably <laughs> so, only one. And probably only one. And then, got, then Scarbrand would die mm-hmm. because he has a four-up save and 14 wounds. Um, but yeah, Scarbrand fighting Archeon is extremely funny because Archeon probably dies to that, but Scarbrand probably does as well because of the amount of mortal wounds get bounced back. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm quite looking forward to running him, to be honest. Silly red sun. He, yeah. He's, um, he's interesting. He's, Scarbrand's like one of the original, um, game warping models because when he came mm. out, nothing really did that, what he does. But, um, he never really took off in the same way, did he? He's just running across the table, getting increasingly angry at you. Cheeky yeah. chappy. Oh, we should maybe we should play with Scarbrand. Maybe, maybe we should give him a maybe we should give him a run out when you've got something you want him to fail to reach and then die to shooting to on the way in. <laughs> <laughs> I think um I I do have the, the nine Stormfiend army, it's painted. Um but I don't think I need to practice it. Uh, so right. I probably won't be running it in any kind of a friendly setting. Uh, if no. we were marching off to a, a team tournament tomorrow, which seems unlikely, um, then I would probably be packing that army in my bag. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, he can fight some fish. That seems fair. Yeah. So I'd not get any kind of mortal wind save. Oh no 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 no! Oh. He, he will tear them apart. Maybe we should try Scarbrand versus Tortoise at some point. Just that's no, maybe this seems unfair. <laughs> Scarbrand eating a tortoise. Yeah, exactly. 
But yeah, um, but yeah, overall, like, I'm just really excited to play more iOS, uh, in mm, every possible same. sense. It's, yeah. Uh, and including more Path to Glory as well, because I think oh, that's yeah. the big, that's the big flip side to all of this, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you and I, and I think maybe obviously the tenor of the podcast has shifted slightly is, um, now there's you and I talking about our competitive experience, but also that's just true of my experience of iOS more generally, right? Like when we started talking mm-hmm. about it years and years ago, I just genuinely did not know how to play that game <laughs> at all. And I <laughs> sort of do now maybe a bit. Uh, and yeah you do but like like there's you know it's changed the way i feel about it and obviously my competitive side has come out but the big flip side to this is like i think it's got a really robust narrative set of systems now and mm-hmm. i really want to play those stories out i probably will do that with my stormcast you know yeah. like it's a, almost a, a completely different game like there was very little to think about in that path to glory game really uh, yeah there's so few models on the table but uh, the flip side to that, it was just a hoot. Uh, yeah. You know, you you push things together, everything blows up. Um, some of it dies forever, some of it doesn't. Sure, why not? Great. And it was like, what, like half an hour, 45 minutes to play that out? I think it took us like two hours. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know how much of that was set up. I, I think there was quite a like... lot of staring at books, writing the lists and going oh that's how that works and retrieving black coaches from cupboards and oh, yeah, remembering what it was we were doing yeah yeah absolutely but nonetheless <laughs> um yeah and i think i think it is um it's a testament to i think where the game is at that i want to play all of these different kinds of aos 100%. you know it just sort of depends on mood really rather yeah. than it being like oh this is what the game is about now um they have they've been i think we said this much earlier but i think it has a more more coherent identity as I think is a game now, and sits more comfortably in its split identities, which is obviously always had. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I note in in arguments about the game online, or just even heated discussions, is like often they devolve, I think, into people pushing their interpretations of what the game is trying to be mm-hmm. on each other, right? Like, and um, in variously good or bad faith, depending on the the context. And like, I think at the moment it's fair to say, like, this is like it's a big sandbox for kind of creating these different sort of fantasy battle experiences. And I just think it operates. It's far more functional, both from a product design point of view and in terms of the rule set at being that for about as many different audiences as it possibly served than it ever has been. Doesn't mean it's perfect by any means. Like there's yeah. certainly a lot of weird edge cases, but hundred percent agree. I think, uh, I have, there's plenty of stuff I've moaned about with this edition. I, I, I do feel bad and I think people who talk to me probably have got the impression I don't like AOS 3 I think it's the best edition of the game they've put out, I think most of the changes are great there's some stuff that obviously needs tweaking it's such a radical change I think from old editions that they weren't going to get everything perfect straight away Yeah, and it's uh, you know and it's worth talking about the things they haven't got right and or you, you know I feel they haven't got right and uh, what can be done about it or if nothing gets done about it, how you uh, play around it. Um, but on the whole, yeah, I think it's a triumph. Lovely. And uh, the general handbook, just got to say, is as a, like a thing, as an object, as a product, it's like the best thing Games Workshop have ever made. It's so nice. <laughs> it's so, yeah. Why aren't more wargaming war rule books designed like children's activity books i want my combat file effects exactly it's yes exactly that 
it is it is the not only the most functional identity, it's also the most honest identity for this thing <laughs> is ever had. Yeah, um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so good. Essentially, we like it. It's good. We like Filofaxes. More of them, please. Good. I think that's basically all of the thoughts that are in my brain. Yeah, same. Probably we should probably bring this episode to a halt so that we can go back to talking about Warhammer on Discord. <laughs> um, <laughs> so appreciate we're not doing a questions section this episode because uh, it we long. Just wanted to talk a lot. It long. It already very long. However, if you let send us a question for a future episode of the podcast, you can do so by emailing us at miniatures at creightoncrowbar.com. You can also tweet us at minis monthly, which um, I'll get back to checking and probably update. So it's the actual <laughs> name of this podcast any day now, any day now. Just watch me go. Um, if you would like to hang out with the role models community from, from whence all of these, um, these pods emanate, uh, you, you can find us on Discord. The link for which is on the Crate and Crowbar website at crateandcrowbar.com. It's right up there in the in the in the header navigation. Um, more than that, uh, how can people find pictures of your lovely miniatures? Uh, people uh, can find me on Instagram, mm. uh, where I very helpfully have um, an almost impossible to describe username. I am at thirty seven visible skulls. Uh, that's all spelled out in all one word. Yeah, I think that's it's a, it's a perfectly that's a perfectly simple username. I don't know. I don't know what the problem is. Just don't write thirty-seven the number. Just remember and remember it's the number thirty-seven, and they're <laughs> yes. visible skulls. Other than that, it's perfectly clear. Um, and now you can be found on Instagram at uh, Exit Warp, where my pictures will be, including Scarbrand, very soon. I'm staring at him. I don't think I will finish him tonight because I have realised how many leather straps he has. <laughs> is that a lot? He's not wearing a lot of clothes, but he is wearing some. And so, you know. That's good. I'm definitely at the, I'll say this, I'm definitely at the, I could just paint the rim and call it done stage. Mm. But there's always going to be that little voice in the back of my head, which is like, you didn't wink his horns. You know what isn't isn't done, you know, in your own head. Other people might not know it's there, but you know it's there. Yeah. And that's what matters. But I don't know what to do with that information. That's a really crucial thing. <laughs> uh, prevaricate. That's what I do with that information. Can do. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. And yeah, uh, thank you. we'll catch you next time. <laughs>